peace, namaste, and shalom. Everybody out there in dreamland, I am the beyond top secret Texan. Join me on my podcast, the Beyond Top Secret Texan podcast, where I explore the outer limits of human abilities, top secret military technologies, the reality of extraterrestrial birth alliances, secret space wars, advanced cryptozoology, and all subjects of theosophic truth, esotericism, and the occult. Beyond the Top Secret Texan Podcast. Greetings, namaste, and shalom. Iron sharpens iron, and a friend sharpens a friend. Thank you all very much for tuning in to another episode of the Beyond the Top Secret Texan. I am the Beyond Top Secret Texan, broadcasting to you from the third coast, the coast with the most, the Gulf Coast of Texas, and it is my pleasure and privilege to be doing so. Listeners new and old alike, Thank you from the bottom of my heart most sincerely for all the downloads, listens, and comments on my social media pages, which you can all find links to for the time being before they are shadow banned into oblivion and outright censored with deplatforming. Happens more than you think, and it's a bigger problem right now for the world than anyone is willing to admit that we have bottlenecked all creatives and all independent and amateur creative types, whether it be virtual, digital uh, media, uh, comedians, analog artists real visual artists, you know, performers, etc., into having to exist on the social media sphere, the digital world, the virtual world, um, to a greater intensity than one was ever expected to exist in the physical world uh, regarding popularity and impressions, uploads, uh, work, you know, accomplished uh, projects, uh, communication between you and your audience or your fans into a domain that incorporates literally an entire major uh, media companies staffing responsibilities into one single person, and that is the content creator or the independent operator of such content pages this monolithic type of uh, division of labor where a creator not only has to be inspired and perfect his art but also uh, his craft whatever it may be um, but also be able to publicize and negotiate network uh, promote uh, you know, absolutely make sure that everything is done and done correctly because even though they try to make it where it's very upfront, 
it is, um, even for this podcast, an extremely taxing operation to search and find the nuances of distribution platforms, the networking of people who are involved with that industry, etc. So, thank you all very much for helping me, those that are sharing, liking, subscribing, etc. Thank you all very much, most sincerely. Either of you have done that since the beginning, the very first show, an upload um, on YouTube, or or doing it now as this is your very first episode ever found or listened to. You know, maybe you're listening to this in the future. Same, Same goes to those who have continued to support and everything. But the easiest way to make sure that you have access to all my information, audios, uh, uploads, episodes, etc. is through Linktree slash Beyond Top Secret Texan. Linktree slash Beyond Top Secret Texan. It'll bring you to my website. It'll bring you to my social media. It'll bring you to my YouTube. Bring you to the merch store. Bring you to all of that good shit. And you guys can stay up to date, up to the minute, finger on the pulse of the Beyond Top Secret Texan together we're going to raid this train to glory and we will already published over 200 episodes and nearing 300 episodes as we create this thank you all very much for listening to what I have to say and thank you all very much even more full obligation to those that take it seriously that are encouraging and those that are understanding this is very heavy material this is very serious material And while many might cover the same material, but in a much more sardonic or post-ironic way, I bring it to you straight. Because it's the straight dope. It's the truth. It's mainlining the truth. And it might provide, it might produce an overdose, it might get you sick, it might get you dope sick, it might get you... Um, scared off from ever doing it again but the more you find yourself exposed to the truth the more you will become addicted to the truth and even those who only intend to view truth and conspiracy material on the weekends will soon find themselves jonesing for conspiracy and truth material UFO videos, cryptid evidence conspiracies of the government and of the militaries of the world of industries of celebrities of all aspects of our life and culture our very history itself daily seeking answers to the riddles you have not been asked yet 
Today I'm going to be reading an excellent compendium of anonymous posts by a brave, one can only imagine, a cultist involved in various secret societies and having learned and been initiated in their ancient mysteries went rogue and holding to the original oath that there is no higher or holier truth than truth itself turned whistleblower and provided as much testimony as they could in their life eventually taking full responsibility and mantle for this operation but at the time choosing to post on 4chan for the anonymity and the general respect and enjoyment of the forum on a personal level This is a highly detailed, yet summarized, full explanation of the cult of Moloch, of child sacrifice, of the events umbrella-termed into Pizzagate, as well as the importance of various individuals, historical precedents, cultural phenomenon associated either very tightly or loosely with this in the United States of America. Warning right now that it's extremely graphic descriptions it's uncensored honesty and it's horrifying contents are not for the faint of heart they are not endorsed in any way by the Beyond Top Secret Texan podcast and are only told in the sake of bringing forth this controversial truth and truth should never ever be censored especially when discussing the secret and the clandestine and the covert without further delay or introduction I will begin The three cults that rule the world. Cult of Moloch. Popular among Western elite, mainly on the Rome, London, Washington, D.C. axis of the Atlantic. It consists of sacrificing children to acquire hallucinogenic and supposedly life-prolonging body substances, in addition to sex magic 
cults are held in remote locations in California and inland France, as well as underground Rome, Italy, and Greece, where the Polfags call the Jewish conspiracy is nothing more than the cult of Moloch, which is totally controlled by powerful Jews, Catholics, and Protestant groups. The iconography is Canaanite, and Canaanite was a tribe of Judea. Thus, their iconography is Jewish, or ancient Mediterranean, proto-Arabic, and Egyptian. Second cult, vampires. Popular at the top of organized crime, internationally and among sections of business elite, it consists of the consumption of blood from young and quote-unquote pure victims for the acquisition of vital forces. Vitia aqua. And prolonged youth. Vitia immorta. Objects of worship vary from Aztec gods, Celtic gods, and entities of voodoo and other tribal jungle religions. Palo Mayamba and Quimbada as African vampire cults. Warning, the vampiric potency is not a unified institution or organization. It is a set of common practices of extremely illegal natures. Several different international cults exist but usually passed on traditions with each other through alliances and organizations to make them one larger organized entity. Consisting of blood consumption, worships of entities with evil tendencies or vampiric tendencies and sacrifices to gods, such as Catholic gods or serpent gods. It is found in the midst of organized crime at the highest levels and used in many of their ceremonies and tortures, but in niches of business worlds, such as the CEO groups or extremely elite fraternities. The Black Lodge of Tibet, number three. The Black Lodge of Tibet. Tibetan cult popular among the elite of the Far East and other Asiatic countries. Now international. Also called the cult of death. It is widespread among the elite of the Communist Party of China, Japanese conservatives, Koreans, both North and South, and various Indo-Pacific elites from Indonesia, Cambodia, Vietnam, Malaysia, Thailand, etc. It consists of esoteric practices that involve invocations of Tibetan gods of death. It has a local organization linked to a spiritual potency located in Tibet, which was responsible for the expulsion of the Dalai Lama and the White Lodge to India. 
extra fact. The Nazis were part of the Tibetan Black Lodge. Much of the Nazi Aryan mythologies are Tibetan Black Lodge Aryan mythologies. The cult of Moloch uses its cult to manipulate Western elites such as celebrities. Not only that, they select the elite components through worship, such as ceremonies and sports and concerts. Pedophiles, serial rapists, psychopaths, and all sorts of evil people are recruited and promoted, but ones that can be easily manipulated by skilled strategists, and they are selected to compose the Western elite. They are the type of people who don't mind seeing a baby being stabbed to death at a ritual or an eight-year-old boy being gangbanged to exhaustion and death by 30 adult men in a sex ritual in Washington, D.C. And they are the kind of people who can be manipulated with promises of power and blackmailed if they want to leave the cult to never speaking. It is the Ashkenazi Jew who controls the cult of Moloch. They are heirs to the Renaissance Kabbalists, or the Sabbatists. They are heirs to the Pharisees, who are heirs to the worshippers of Baal and Moloch among the Hebrews. In fact, it is a global conspiracy that influences the international political chess game that we are seeing now. But one point has to be understood. The fact that they are Jews is not a connection point between members of the cult, but this is not decisive. It's not like a Jewish elite above the West, it's just that their numbers are overwhelmingly represented. There is an elite within the elite and within an elite of that that controls the elite with this cult of Moloch through force, deadly force. Assassinations are very common. Jeffrey Epstein was a member of this cult of Moloch. A few years ago, I read an account written by French occult leaders detailing a, ma detailing a mass child sacrifice to Moloch in Byzantine several hundred years ago. It was on a religious anti-Jewish website that has been closed down now, and even though it was basically all lol Jews sacrifice children and are naked a lot, the details, the drawings, etc. were very indicative of modern cult practices. The more things change, the more they stay the same. In the West, those who are controlled are in charge of those of the cult of Moloch. They are spread across the U.S. federal government, NATO military, Federal Reserve, the FBI, the CIA, the European Union, Silicon Valley, Hollywood, I would say the biggest concentrations are in New York, Washington, D.C., London, Los Angeles, and Geneva, Switzerland. In fact, the Western... I would also put Toronto as well. Toronto, I would say British Columbia, and... Um, I want to say Dallas and Houston on that list, as well as uh, Miami and... Uh, Atlanta. Go ahead and put Atlanta on that one, too. And there's Chicago. That's always a classic one.
In fact, the Western elite is always in a cold war with truth groups. The relationship this elite and organized crime include here the Russian government, which is dominated by mafias, dominated by hemophagus is delicate, or as a sorry, the hemophagus is a delicacy. The Chinese Black Lodge is a very powerful and represents a serious threat to Western interests. They just don't act harder because they depend on Western markets. Giovanni Pico del Merendabalo was an Italian Renaissance nobleman and philosopher. He is famed by the events of 1486 when, at the age of 23, he proposed to defend 900 theses on religion, philosophy, natural philosophy, and magic against all comers, for which he wrote the Oration of the Dignity of Man which has been called the Manifesto of the Renaissance and a key text of the Renaissance humanism of what has been called the Hermetic Reformation. He was the founder of the tradition of Christian Kabbalah, a key element of early modern Western esotericism. The 900 Thesis was the first printed book to be universally banned by the Catholic Church. In November 1484, he settled for a time in Florence and met Lorenzo de Medici and Marcello Ficino. It was an astrological auspicious day that Ficino had chosen to publish his translations of the works of Plato from Greek into Latin. Under Lorenzo's enthusiastic patronage, Pico appears to have charmed both men and despite Ficino's philosophical differences, he was convinced of the Saturnine affinity and the divine providence of his arrival. Lorenzo would support and protect Pico until his death in 1492. Pico spent several months in Perugia and nearby Frata. It was there, as he wrote to Ficini, that divine providence caused certain books to fall into my hands. They are the Chaldean books, the books of Estras, of Zoroaster, and of Melchior. Oracles of the Magi, which contain a brief and dry interpretation of Chaldean philosophy, but full of mystery. It was also in Perugia that Pico was introduced to the mystical Hebrew Kabbalah, who fascinated him, as did the late classical Hermetic writers such as Hermes Tresmegistus. The Kabbalah and the Hermetica were thought in Pico's time to be as ancient as the Old Testament. Shambhala. As reported by Tim Cummings in The Guardian, the man credited with almost single-handedly bringing Tibetan Buddhism to the West was the Dalai Lama's emissary, Gerald York, a personal friend and secretary to Aleister Crawley, the godfather of 20th century Satanism. York also wrote an original foreword to a secret book on the Kalakran Initiation, Kalakra Initiation, and Alistair Crawley, the Golden Dawn, and Buddhism. York also served as consulate to Lucifer Rising by experimental filmmaker Kenneth Anger, based on the concept from Crowley's Book of the Law. Anger, who was at the center of the bizarre nexus of rock and roll and occultism in Laurel Canyon during the 1960s, was also closely associated with Anton LaVey head of the Church of Satan, and members of the Manson clan. Also in October 1998, 
the Dalai Lama's administration acknowledged that it received $1.7 million a year in the 1960s from the U.S. government through the CIA, the Central Intelligence Agency. Not when you consider the real history of the Dalai Lama distinct from the phantasm that has been portrayed in the mainstream media does this start making sense. The popularity of the Dalai Lama as an expression of the wisdom of Buddhism is actually related to occult myths of Shambhala, which is its origins in geopolitical antics of the great game created by the British, the United Kingdom. The strategic rivalry and conflict for supremacy in Central Asia between the British Empire and the Russian Empire in the 18th century. Not to say that the rival empires battled for control of a Shibala, a true actual Shibala, but rather the occult mythologies that seems to have nurtured to serve imperial ambitions and control huge populations uh, in Asia. Shambhala, the legendary home of the Aryan race, was derived originally from the notion first proposed by Emanuel Swedenborg and popularized by Scottish Rite Mason Chevalier Ramsey of the Hindu Tantra as an expression of an Asian Kabbalah which provided the opportunity to propose an origin of the occult tradition in a people other than the Jews, and to identify them as purported ancestors of all Europeans. This is some substance of Swedenborg's claims, as Grisham Scholm also noticed that the Kabbalah bore a marked resemblance to those of Indian yoga and Muslim Sufism. However, instead of ancient Aryans, Migration, such similarities can be attributed more likely to later Gnostic influences into Asia on the Silk Road. In other words, it was Jewish Kabbalah that influenced Indian Tantra and created Tibetan Buddhism, not the other way around. Tantra is a style of occultism recognized by scholars to have arisen in medieval India no later than the 5th century AD after which it influenced Hindu traditions and Buddhism. The Gospel of Thomas, discovered among the Gnostic Gospels near Nag Hammada in 1945, is named for the Apostle Thomas, who was traditionally believed by Christians in Kerala in southwest India to have spread Christianity among the Jews there. Edward Conzi, a British scholar of Buddhism, pointed out that Buddhism and Buddhists were in contact with these Thomas Christians. Ellen Pagels mentioned that trade routes between the Greco-Roman world and the Far East were opened at a time when Gnosticism flourished, AD 80 to 200. For generations, Buddhist missionaries had been proselytizing in Alexandra. In 1833, Sosma de Cross was the first to report the legend of Shambhala in the West based on the linguistic affinities between Hungarian and the Turkic languages, Dekoros felt that the origins of the Hungarian people were in the land of the Uyghurs in Xinjiang, a province of northwest China. An 1825 letter, Sosma Dekoros wrote that Shambhala is like Buddhist Jerusalem and believed it would probably be found in Kazakhstan. 
close to the Gobi Desert. Others later would also locate it more specifically either in Jinjiang or in the Altai Mountains. Salmos' knowledge of Shambhala was derived from the Kalachakara Tantra of Tibetan Buddhism, a superstitious and highly ritualized set of beliefs that evolved from an amalgam of Buddhism, Hindu Tantra, and the pre-Buddhist shamanistic religion of Bon. Developed in the 10th century, the Kala Chakra is furthest removed from the earlier Buddhist traditions. In Tibetan Buddhist tradition, it is claimed that the Buddhists taught Tantra, but that since these were secret teachings transmitted only from guru to disciple, they were generally written down long after his other teachings and sometimes long after his life. However, historians argue that assigning these teachings to the historical Buddha is patently absurd. The Xazna's knowledge of Shambhala was derived from the Kalachatantra of Buddhism. Oh, sorry. Uh, the Kalachatantra is considered by lamas to be pinnacle of Buddhist systems, but there have traditionally only been individual experts who truly command the complicated rituals. For the yellow hats, the Galakpa, there are the Dalai Lama and the Pension Lama. In public, as revealed in the comprehensive study of Victor and Victoria Tramadandi, the Dalai Lama performs only the seven lowest levels of initiation, while the secrets of the upper eight degrees may not, under pain of torturous punishment, to be discussed with the uninitiated at any costs. In these upper degrees, extreme mental and physical exercises are used to push the initiate into states beyond good and evil, mirroring tendencies found among the Gnostics. The, the Kalachkra Tantra requires the initiate to indulge in killing, lying, stealing, infidelity, the consumptions of alcohol and drugs, and sexual intercourse with lower class girls. And boys. Zoma de Koros. Mention of the Shambhala through the basis of the mystical speculations offered by H.P. Blavatsky, who founded the Theosophical Society and came to be regarded as an oracle of Freemasonry and the godmother of Western occultism. Blavatsky became largely responsible for initiating the popularity of Buddhism as a front for the ancient mystery wisdom. More specifically, Blavatsky saw Tibetan Buddhism as the only true preservation of ancient shamanic and traditional magic systems. The White Tsar The exploitation of the myth of Shambhala was in alignment with the new political directions of the Great Game. There would be future actors connected to the Theosophical Society and the Matronist Order headed by Gerard Nkoso, who also known as Papas. As a young man, Papas studied Kabbalah and later joined the French Theosophical Society and was also a member of the Hermetic Brotherhood of Luxor and the Golden Dawn. Papas at also founded the Kabbalistic Order of the Rose Cross, along with the Saint Eve of de Alvadre, Grand Master of the Martinist Order, who proposed that political philosophy of synarchism, which became the bedrock of much 20th century fascism. 
Synergy came to mean rule by secret societies, serving as priestly class. Or sorry, serving as priestly classes and rulers in direct communication with the gods. In secret, meaning the ascended masters of Agartha, a legendary city that is said to reside in hollow earth. Agartha was connected to the myth of Shimbala, popularized by Blavatsky as the legendary home of the Aryan race and derived its influence from Belwar Latan's occult novel, The Coming Race of Rill, The Power of the Coming Race. It is probably through Martinus channels that the Polish explorer Ferdinand Osendowski learned of the legend of Agartha. Ozendowski wrote a book in 1922 titled Beasts, Men, and Gods, in which he tells a story he claims was imparted to him of a subterranean kingdom which exists inside the earth. This kingdom was known to the Buddhists as Agartha, which is associated with Shambhala. Ozendowski was told of the miraculous powers of the Tibetan monks, and the Dalai Lama in particular, which foreigners could barely comprehend and continue but there is also exists a still more powerful and holy man in Buddha or in Buddhism, the king of the world in Agartha. In establishing the OKRC, the Rose Cross, which he came to be regarded as the inner circle of the Martinist order, Pappas dreamed of uniting cultists into a revived Rosicrucian Brotherhood as an international occult order in which he hoped the Russian Empire would play a leading role as a bridge between East and West. Pappas believed that the vast Russian Empire was the only power capable of thwarting the conspiracy of the Shadow Brothers, the Rothschilds, and to prepare for the coming war with Germany. Pappas served Tsar Nicholas II and Tsarina Alexandra both as physician and occult consultant. Though Pappas, the imperial family, became well as the ability to control lightning, to travel invisibly, and then was later known as Rasputin. He was known to possess remarkable healing powers. purported forgers of the Protocols of Zion were also said to have made use of an earlier version of a work discovered by Rasputin. Among these circles, the city of St. Petersburg became a hotbed of plots surrounding the great game of confused British and Russian agents, as reported by Richard B. Spence in Secret Agent 666. In the summer of 1897, Alistair Crawley had also traveled to St. Petersburg in Russia under the employ of the British Secret Service, aiming to gain an appointment to the court of Tsar Nicholas II as an advisor. A key actor in these intrigues was the Lama Agvan Durzhev, or Durzhev, chief tutor of the Dalai Lama XIII who became the ambassador of the court of Tsar Nicholas II. In 1898, only a few months after Crowley's visit, Darzhev himself traveled to St. Petersburg to meet the Tsar. 
Darjev's meeting with Nicholas II was arranged by the Tsar's close confidant, Prince Esper Uktomsky. A theosophist, Uktomsky's closest ally was court or Count Sergei White, Russia's minister of finance and first cousin to Blavatsky herself. When Utomsky accompanied Nicholas II while he was in his grand tour to the east, he made contact with Blavatsky and Alcott at the headquarters of the Theosophical Society at Edyao, India, and promised to use his influence to push together their projects. Hinting at the nature of the Russian ambitions he represented, Utomsky wrote, In our organic connection with all these lands lies the pledge of the future in which Asiatic Russia will simply consume all of Asia, as he explained. The bonds that unite our parts of Europe with Iran and Turan, Central Asia, and and through them with India and the Celestial Empire, China, are so ancient and lasting that as yet we ourselves as a nation and a state do not fully comprehend their full meaning and the duties they entail on us, but in our home and foreign policy, we must. By the 1890s, Darjuf had begun to spread the story that Russia was the mythical land of Shambhala, that Nicholas II was the white czar that would save Buddhism, raising hopes that he would support Tibet and its religion. By 1903, both Lord Kuzan, the Viceroy of India, and Francis' young husband, or Francis, yeah, young husband, became convinced that Russia and Tibet had signed secret treaties threatening the British interests in India and suspected that Georgiev was working for the Russians. The fear of Russia drawing Tibet into the great game to control the routes across Asia and into the Himalayas was therefore a reason for the British invasion of Tibet in 1903. According to legend, Dorjev then fled to Mongolia with the Dalai Lama. It is possible that Dorjev was also involved in a later plot to carve out a huge Mongol empire in Central Asia by the mad baron Roman, uh, Roman van Erngon Sternberg, who in 1921 established a short-lived regime in Outer Mongolia during the Russian Civil War. A self-proclaimed warrior Buddhist who dreamed of leading a holy war in Asia against Europe, the Baron adhered to the Shambhala myth, believing himself to be a reincarnation of Kangjin Dzonga, the Mongolian god of war, and allegedly tried to contact the king of the world in Argartha in hopes of furthering his scheme. Darjev's disciple was Sternberg's supply officer, and Ferdinand Osendowski was also a key advisor, having joined the Baron's army as a commanding officer in one of the self-defense regiments. Darjev was widely suspected as being one and the same as George Goodjeff, a charismatic hypnotist, carpet trader, and spy who worked as a Russian secret agent in Tibet during the early parts of 20th century, having been in conflict with the Bektest Sufis of Turkey. Gurdjieff was also put forward the myth of Central Asian shamanism as the source of the occult traditions. 
This enters the Green Dragon Society. Gurdjieff has also alleged ties to British intelligence. There was and has often been the suggestion that he and Joseph Georgevsky, or George Lavalli, later known as Stalin, met as a young student while attending the same seminary in the Caucasus. Gorgiev's family records contain information that Stalin lived with his family house for a while into adulthood. There were also suggestions that Stalin belonged to an occult Eastern Brotherhood which consisted of Gardchev and his followers. Louis Powells, a former student of Gardchev and his book Monsieur Gardchev, asserts that one of the searchers after truth that Gardchev speaks of in his book Meetings with the Remarkable Men was Karl Hoscheffer who, through his student Rudolf Hess, influenced the development of Adolf Hitler's geopolitical strategies. Hoscheffer was also a leading member of the Tool Society, from which evolved the Nazi Party, and which was founded by Baron Rudolf von Sebatondorf, who had studied Kabbalah in Turkey under Bukfastif Sufis, who were also Freemasons. Hushoffer was supposed to have been with Gardchev in Tibet, supposedly advising Hoshefer to adopt the swastika as the flag for Nazi Germany. The Tool Society was also to have established contact with secret monastic orders of Tibet through a small colony of Tibetan Buddhists, who was established in Berlin in 1928. According to Powell's and Berger, in the morning of the magicians, the Thule Society sought to make a pact with Shambhala, but only Agarti agreed to help Hoshever believed. I follow a cult legend that subsequent to a global cataclysm, the Aryans split into many groups. One went south and founded Agartha in the Antarctic area, the holder of the right-hand path and positive Vril. The other tried to return to Hyperborea, the north, named Thule Base, founding instead Shambhala in the Himalayan mountains, a city of the degenerate, hedonistic, evil, left-hand path and negative forces. Already by 1926, explained Powell's and Berger, there were colonies of Hindus and Tibetans in Munich and Berlin called the Society of the Green Man. In astral connection with the Green Dragon Society in Japan, to which Hoshifer belonged. The leader of the Society of Green Men was a Tibetan Lama known as the Man with the Green Gloves, who supposedly visited Hitler frequently and held the keys to Argartha. It is rumored this is how Hitler became fascinated with the Hollow Earth. Mel Gordon in Hitler's Jewish clairvoyance discusses the career of an occult figure in late Weimar Republic Berlin, sometimes referred to as the magician with the green gloves, and the service of the Nazis. He was not a Tibetan, but rather a Jew who went by the name Eric John Hannesen. A devotee of Asiatic and Tantric Eastern traditions, he enjoyed the company of Germany's 
a military and business elite. In March 1932, when Hitler, pro- political future seemed doomed, Hannesen predicted a resurgence of the Nazi party and gave Hitler his personal blessings. Dr. Walter C. Langer, a psychoanalyst, prepared a psychological profile of Hitler for the Office of Strategic Services in England in 1943, according to which, during the early 1920s, Hitler took regular lessons in speaking, mass psychology, and stagecraft from a man named Hannesen, who was a practicing astrologer, fortune teller, and popular magician. He was an extremely clever individual who also taught Hitler a great deal concerning the importance of staging meetings and events to obtain the greatest dramatic effect. A 1933 book titled Les Septales du Dragon Vet, The Seven Heads of the Green Dragon by Teddy Legrand, has also makes mention of the same society. Teddy Legrand is a pseudonym, the author's real name being Pierre Marial, during the name Werner Garson, who would also later write Le Nazism, Society Secret, Nazi the Secret Society, one of the first books of the Nazi occult. Marial was all one time French Grand Master of the Antiques Mysticusto Odo Roseo Crucias, the Amarque. Founded in 1915 in New York, which was developed by Aleister Crawley and borrowed heavily from Theosophy and the Golden Dawn. Marial was also a member of the Matriist Order, which he hinted might have had links to the Green Dragon Society. The book presents the Green Dragon, or simply the Greens, as an insidious international cabal who seek world domination. Marial also implies the connected with the conspiracy was Rudolf Steiner, founder of the Anthrosophical Society, a breakaway organization from the Theosophical Society. Through his connections to pan-German secret societies and an underground, i.e. organized crime. Mention is also made of Gardjev and Bravatsky's successor, Anna Besant. In the book, two brother spies are inspired by their shared curiosity about an object supposedly found on the executed Tsarina Alexandra's body, which bears an enigmatic inscription in English. S-I-M-P The Green Dragon You are absolutely right. It is too late. They quickly determine that the first element, which is accompanied by a six-pointed Kabbalistic symbol of the Martinists, stands for the superior in Kanu, Maitre Philippe, as reports by Legrand after the murder of the Russian imperial family in 1918. A judicial investigator, Nikolai Sokolov, concluded that German intelligence has been active in both the Tsarist and Bolshevik camps since the 1880s. The Tsarina had approved and apparently adopted the symbol of the swastika as her personal signature, which seems to have been used to communicate with an organization attempting to support them. The leader of the organization, Boris Solovev, 
was Rasputin's son-in-law and also a triple agent for the German Secret Service. Solovev deceived the Tsarist camp by pretending to work for their cause while actually delivering them all to the Bolsheviks. Rasputin was an agent in this scheme, receiving letters from his handlers in Sweden signed The Green. Supposedly then, Maltra Philippe had tried to warn the Tsarina before the Bolshevik assassination plot. Among the secrets Beckett supposedly revealed to Trebich Lincoln was that there were only 72 true men for each generation. These were identified with the Green Dragon, or more simply, the Greens, who number precisely 72 conspirators, who were presumably the 72 unknown superiors of occult legend. They were also considered the same as mentioned by Walter Rathenau, a Jewish politician who served foreign ministry of Germany during the Weimar Republic. Just before he died, he blamed the 72 men who control the world as responsible for his assassination on June 24, 1922. Two months after the signing of the Treaty of Rapallo, which renounced German territorial claims from World War One. Tribich Lincoln himself was suspected of being the man or llama with the green gloves, according to Tribich Lincoln, the Society of the Green Men. The parents of the Thule group originated in Tibet in 1939. Edward Sabi published Hitler at Le Forces Occult in which he depicts Hitler as a medium, a magician, and an initiate, and also refers to the connection with Tibet. Wasn't it Trebich Lincoln, the friend of the Tibetan Badmayov, who initiated Hitler into the Black Lodge by revealing to him the doctrine of Ostara, a secret school of India where the Lamas teach the supremacy of the Aryan man. The Mongol Dr. Pietro Badmyov, a practitioner of Tibetan herbal medicine, was an associate of Lama Dodjev, Uktomsky, and Sergei de White in St. Petersburg at the court of Nicholas II, wherein they envisioned the White Tsar of Shambhala. Tripsch Lincoln even won the confidence of the Gestapo's local representative, SS Colonel Joseph, the Butcher of Warsaw, Messenger, who he convinced he could rally the Buddhists of the East against any remaining British influence in the area. 
Meisinger urged that the scheme received serious attention and sent him to Berlin, where Heinrich Himmler was enthusiastic for it, as was Rudolf Hess, but it was abandoned after his flight to Scotland in May 1941 ended in betrayal and arrest by British secret society members. And now I read that out loud, probably from the Green Society, to be honest. The Greens got him. Now, he went to go communicate with the Greens and offer them in a, uh, either a peace treaty, I believe it's a peace treaty, between Nazi Germany and the British occult societies. And then they betrayed him and they arrested him on the spot. And then they captured him, basically, and they never let him go. Uh, and he died at the age of 80, still in the same prison. Expeditions to Tibet. Hoshifer therefore apparently acquainted Hitler with the teaching of the Society of the Green Dragon and taught him the techniques of Gurdjieff's Fourth Way, which were ostensibly based on the teachings of the Sufis and the Tibetan Lamas. Under the influence of Hoshifer, Hitler authorized the creation of the Adenarbe in 1935 that sponsored expeditions to locate the Aryan forefathers in Shambhala and Argartha. In 1939, expedition was said to have gone to Tibet with the specific purpose of setting up vital radio contacts between the Third Reich and the Lamas in 1939, and Blavatsky's stanzas of Jan, who was used as a code for all messages between Berlin and Tibet during the entirety of the war. Poles and Berger argued that Hitler sent the expedition out of his desire to find Agartha, which he had been made aware of from his relationship with the man with the green gloves. Ernst Scharfer, a German hunter and biologist, participated in three expeditions to Tibet in 1931, in 1934, and 1938, supposedly for sport and zoological research. Among the expedition was Dr. Bruno Bagger, a member of Himmler's personal staff who was the actual expert who pushed forward the racial studies of the Anunurba. In 1939, he went to Tibet as a member of the SS expedition, when they measured the skulls of more than 400 Tibetans in order to investigate a possible relationship between the Tibet and, uh, Tibetan and Aryan races. In 1943, he was sent to Auschwitz, where he took the measurements of 150 mainly Jewish prisoners' skulls. In 1971, he appeared in a German court and was sentenced to three years imprisonment on probation for these crimes as a Nazi. Berger was also connected to the current reigning Dalai Lama IV, who was revered as a representing a special connection between the Nazis and Tibet. Acting as the young Dalai Lama's personal tutor until the early 1950s, was former SS officer Heinrich Herrer, a Austrian mountain climber, competition skier, geographer, and author. He is best known for his books, including Seven Years in Tibet, 1952, which was the basis of the film in 1997, starring Brad Pitt in the role of Herrer. A strong friendship developed between Herrer and the Dalai Lama that would last for the rest of their lives. 
coinciding with the Schaefer Expedition in 1934-1935, was another conducted by Nicholas Rorich in search of Shambhala in Urno-Mongolia, Manchuria, and China. Organized by the U.S. Department of Agriculture, according to some researchers, Rorick became a member of the Papas the Ordre Martiniste while in St. Petersburg prior to World War I. There, Rorick was involved in the construction of Buddhist temple under the guidance of Lama Agvan Jarjev. The Rorick's affinities to Martinism and Synarchy were also found in his link with Harvey Spencer Lewis, who has been keen on making Rorick a legate of the Amarch on his expedition to Tibet, which apparently Rorick never was. Nevertheless, Amarch claims to this day that Rorick communicated certain occult techniques from Tibet, which were so integrated in their Rosicrucian teachings. Lewis boasted of his correspondence he received from Rorick's second expedition. In Shambhala, in search of a new era, Rorick also hinted at a similarity between Shambhala and Thule, and mentioned the association of Shambhala and the underground city of Agarti. Reached through tunnels through the Himalayan mountains, Heinrich Müller, who was in charge of the Gestapo section of the Nazis, claimed that Rorick was known to the Gestapo under the code word Lama, and that he had contacted the Nazi regime in 1934 to ascertain whether they were interested in supporting his undertakings and exploring Inner Asia. One of Rorik's followers was a young Russian theosophist, Vladimir Anatolovich Shibyov, an agent for the Communist International, Comintern, working with Indian nationalists. Shevorov introduced the Roricks to other Soviet officials and encouraged their plans to move to India as a first step towards the Great Plan. Rorik held close ties to the Cheka, the Bolshevik secret police, later renamed the OGPU, NKVD, and ultimately KGB. The head of the OGPU special department was G.I. Bokai a former member of Papa's Kabbalistic Order of the Rose Cross, who belonged to Badmov's circle in St. Petersburg. That included Lama Darjev. During the Stalinist purge trials, Boki confessed to having been part of the Masonic Lodge in 1909 of St. Petersburg, but that had been founded by Gardjev, and that included Nicholas Rorik and his wife. Boki was an associate of Alexandra Barkinov, or Barkinko, as a former member of the OKRC and formed student of Gardjev. Bokai was a member of the Edenoi Trudovo Batstrov, ETB, founded by the Barchkinko, whose primary aim was establishing contact with Shambhala and included numerous other former Chekists and British double agents. The ETB lasted until it was disbanded by Stalin in the late 1930s, following charges leveled against Bokai, Barkinkov, and their associates that their occult activities were part of a treasonous Freemasonic plot associated with the British intelligence against Bolshevism. It was Bokai and Barchinko who were charged of the OGPU's effort to exploit the services of Nicholas Rorick. Rorick's expeditions began in 1925, attended by the OGPU agents. 
According to his wife, Helena, they were also under the guidance of one of more Blavatsky's Mahatmas, Master Moriah, or Master Alau Ming, as Marcus Osterarder explains. It cannot be denied that they seriously interpreted themselves and their mission as part of some larger spiritual plan that ultimately should serve the advance of all human evolution, especially since Master Aleg Ming warmed them up by revealing their illustrious previous incarnations, thereby freeing vanity and arrogance, a phenomenon that occurs not exclusively in esoteric circles, but finds especially fertile grounds among adepts and politicians. Their ultimate objective, usually referred to as the Grand Plan, like Darjif von Ungam Sturmberg, was to establish a pan-Buddhist transnational new country spanning from Tibet to southern Siberia, including territory that was then governed by China, Mongolia, the nation of Tibet, and the Soviet Union, to be ruled by the Penchim Lama, the spiritual leader of Tibet who had been forced to flee the country in 1923 because of disagreements from the then Dalai Lama, the country's secular leader. It was prophesied that the Penchim Lama's return would signal the beginning of a new golden age. Hearing the Rorik's expedition was nearing the Tibetan border, the British conceal the Dalai Lama not to allow him to reach Lhasu. Rorik then set out again on a second expedition, this time with the support of the Vice President Henry A. Wallace, who was also a member of the Theosophical Society. It is a widely suspected that it was Rorik who inspired Wallace to add the Great Seal of the United States first designed in 1782 on the reverse side of the dollar bill, featured an unfinished pyramid and the Illuminati symbol of the all-seeing eye of providence. With Wallace's help, Rorks were also able to gain the support of President Roosevelt, who had become a member of the high-grade Scottish Rite in 1929. FDR was deeply fascinated by the geography and history of Inner Asia, from Tibet to the Siberian border, what he called the chessboard of international politics. This attitude is reflected in the series of eight letters addressed to him at the instigation of the Masters, and written by Elena Rorick between late 1934 and early 1936. The master communicates to the President of the United States of America that a great state will be created in the East. This beginning will bring that equilibrium which so urgently needed for the construction of the great future. America has since long linked with Asia. Thus, one must accept that the peoples occupying the larger part of Asia are destined to respond to the friendship of America. The alliance of the nations of Asia is decided. The union of tribes and peoples will take place gradually. There will be a kind of federation of countries. Mongolia, China, and the Kalmuks will constitute the counterbalance of Japan. And in this alliance of peoples, your goodwill is needed, Mr. President. 
Rorik's true ambition was to prepare the coming of a new age of peace, which would usher in Rogjenipov, or Rogjenipo, the earthly manifestations of Maitreya, who is prophesied lord of the new era of Shambhala. He is the ruler of the world, and Maitreya himself the last avatar who brings the Kali Yuga, and whose representation on earth is the Dalai Lama. The Rourkes did not expect to wait long to witness these events. Helena Rourke, channeling Josephine St. Hilar, gave the heralds of northern Shambhala five years to arrive, and a Lama predicted to them someone of greatness will come in 1936. Tanzin Gayatso was born in 1935 and identified as the incarnation of the Dalai Lama in 1937, becoming the current Dalai Lama the 14th. Esoteric Hitlerism Esoteric Hitlerism The Dalai Lama continued to maintain important ties to fascist Germany, particularly Chilean diplomat Miguel Serrano, who was an important exponent of what is called esoteric Nazism. Serrano was inspired by Savetri Divi, who achieved wide influence among neo-Nazi circles through her development of a religious form of Nazism that assimilated many notions from Hinduism and glorified the Aryan race and Adolf Hitler as avatars. She linked these ideas to the Hindu notion of the avatar, which incarnates the periodic descent to earth of the deity, typically Vishnu. Savitri's ideas concerning the origins of the Aryans were drawn from the books of Bal Gandhar Talik, the first popular leader of the Indian independence movement against the British colonials. The authorities divisively called him the father of Indian unrest. He was helped found by All India Home Rule League. With Muhammad Ali Jinnah and Anand Basant, Talik was an accomplished scholar of ancient Hindu sacred literature. In 1903, he wrote the book The Arctic Home of the Vedas, in which he argued that the Veda could only have been composed in the Arctic, and that Aryan bards had brought them south after the onset of the last ice age from Hyperborea. After the defeat of the Third Reich, Sereno continued to believe that Hitler had escaped from the ruins of Berlin and found refuge in Antarctica or South America. The idea was widely rumored in the Latin American world, including the official press during the summer of 1945. In the golden thread esoteric Hitlerism, Serrano claimed that Hitler was in Shambhala, formerly at the North Pole and Tibet, but which had been relocated to the Antarctic base in New Schwabeland. There, Hitler was contact with the Hyperborean gods and he would someday emerge with a fleet of UFOs to lead the forces of light over the forces of darkness in a last battle and to inaugurate a fourth Reich upon the world. Serrano's assertions are, assertions are a reflection of a claim of Nazi contact with the Society of the Green Dragon. German conspiracy author Jan Udo Holy, who chose as his nom de plume Van Helsing after he read Bram Stoker's Dracula offers details of the mythos. 
and secret societies and their power. 1993, Helsing claims that Tibetan monks worked for the establishment of the Third Reich with Templar Knights who were organized in the highest lodges of the Black Sun, which reportedly continue to maintain an underground base in the Himalayan mountains. The ruler of the underground kingdom is said to be Rogden Jaipo, with his representative on Earth being the Dalai Lama. Similar claims were put forward by the controversial Trevor Rosen, uh, Ravenscroft in The Spear of Destiny, 1973. According to Ravenscroft, the Nazi mission to Tibet and the aim of establishing contact with the Aryan forefathers in Shambhala and Agartha, adepts were the guardians of secret occult powers, especially Vril secrets, and also mentions the reoccurring stories of the establishment in Berlin of the Society of the Green Men and their mysterious leader, the Man with the Green Gloves. Although these claims do not ring with much plausibility, Alan H. Greenfield, who is also bishop within the Gnostic Catholic Church Ordo Templi Orientis, purportedly corroborate the story. Greenfield claims to have personally interviewed an anonymous Knight of Malta who met with the esoteric leadership of the Third Reich in 1937, attended by Hoshifer to sell the Nazi regime on contact with what he called the coming race. When asked by Greenfield in 1979 to explain what that meant, he explained, the ultra-terrestrials, of course. The Germans had noted their ghost rockets in Sweden and were aware of their power. Most of the older Nazis present, though, were former members of the Thule Society of the Archaic Real Society. And he took me to be talking about Tibetans or Aryan supermen or some such debunked nonsense. Except Hausifer, who knew better, and the man with the green gloves, who, though supposedly a Tibetan himself, was certainly an ultra-terrestrial. Through his diplomatic appointments, Serrano met many leading Indian personalities, becoming a personal friend of Jawaharlal Nehru and Indira Gandhi, Jawaharlal Nehru, Gandhi's closest collaborator, who became the first Prime Minister of Independent India in 1947 through 1964, was recruited by Anne Besant at the age of only 13, herself presiding at his initiation ceremony. During his ambassadorial postings in Vienna and subsequently in Switzerland, a friendship with Arnold Tonboy, before he was dismissed, the Chilean diplomat serviced in 1970s the President Salvador Allende. Serrano cultivated author or friendships with Tonboy, Arthur Kostler, Aldo Husley, and leading former Nazis and international fascists alike, among others, Otto Skorzeny, Hans Ulrich Rudel, Hannah Reich, Harman Wirth, ex-director of the Ananarba, Ezra Pound, the poet, and William Landig. William Landig was a leader of the Landig Group, also known as the Vienna Lodge, formed in 1950 to revive the Aryan mythology of the Thule Society. Described in Goten Gagin Thule at what he refers to as Point 103 as a secret base that has been established by the SS elite in Arctic Canada with a large underground complex equipped with advanced technologies including flying saucers. 
Many foreign delegates attend a great conference held in the assembly hall of the base every year, decorated with astrological symbols and an enormous icon of Mithras slaying the bull. The delegates who have all been flown to the base by flying saucer include a Tibetan Lama, Japanese Emperor, the Chinese Empress, and American royalty, Indians, Arabs, Persians, Africans, Brazilians, Venezuelans, Siamese, and Mexicans all attend as well. The Arabs belong to secret Islamic brotherhoods, the Indians, Persians to ancient Aryan traditions. The Orientals allude to the occult orders of their location and a mysterious secret order connecting them all. Attired in their uniforms or national dress, many of the delegates make speeches identifying their national myths and ideals with those of the Thule Society and pledge their full support spiritually when the time comes for action. Serrano also boasts of being good friends with the Dalai Lama the 14th and provides his explanation at the curious relationship as follows. I also met Dalai Lama at the moment he escaped from the Tibet from uh, communist Chinese invasors. He was very young, 25 years old. I went to meet him at the Himalayas. He never forgets that. And when we meet again during the funeral of Indira Gandhi in Delhi, he invited me to go to Dharmasala, where he lives now. He had a very interesting talk. It is good to know that before Buddhism was introduced to Tibet, Tibetans were a warrior race and their religion, the Bo, used the same swastika as Hitlerism. Until today, intelligence services of England and the United States of America have been unable to discover the real mysterious links that exist between Tibet and Hitlerist Germany. As was the case with most Nazi assets, the Dalai Lama passed into the hands of the CIA after World War II. With the Chinese invasion of Tibet in 1950, the CIA began training Tibetan resistance fighters against the People's Liberation Army, the PLA of China. A CIA-financed front, the American Society for a Free Asia, publicized the cause of Tibetan resistance, and with the Dalai Lama's eldest brother, Tsukten Norbu, playing an active role in organization, the Dalai Lama's second oldest brother, Gaiola Tundep, established an intelligence operation with the CIA as early as 1951. The Burmese Mafia As explained, Victor and Victory Tramundi, for over more than 25 years, many hundreds and hundreds of thousands being initiated by the Dalai Lama the 14th through the mysteries of the Kalachka Tantra and Shambhala, which have become central pillars in the mythology of the religious neo-Nazism, Serino incorporated the 14th Dalai Lama into the formulation of esoteric myths around Hitler. His skill, he said, of the 14th Dalai Lama is closely linked with that of Hitler's Germany, on the basis not yet of discovered connections. The Dalai Lama has never distanced himself from Serrano. Instead, opposing fascism, he recently called for the former Chilean dictator, Augusto Pinochet, to be spared a trial, making reference to the need for forgiveness. The Black Lodge of Tibet isn't specifically about death gods. 
It's about one particular pernicious ghost who broke their vows. The Doge Shugdan. He was part of a retinue of spirits underneath a death god who actually kept the vows they made to the Dharma. Shugden broke his vows and decided he wanted to recreate Buddhism, i.e., destroy it. He enacts Old Testament-style punishments on anything that pisses him off, and every single worshiper of his that has not, or that has notoriety, has died after becoming sick. The Chinese took up this spirit because he is already causing problems in order to support the slaughter of the Dalai Lama and the control of the Tibetan people. This cult and spirit are part of the forces which would attempt to destroy Tibet and take over all of Asia. However, the Chinese don't only adhere to this cult. It's only a small part of how the elites play people against each other. They do use the oracles of Doji Shungden, to my knowledge. Quite frequently, at least they used to. Doji Shugden seems to have lost power. Why I could not possibly say, I can only assume that the Dalai Lama won the war with him. Doji Shugden is a bit of a giant rabbit hole in China itself, uh, and very much the reason for the Tibet war. Chinese Womao and the like try to frame it as a religious freedom issue, but this isn't the problem. Shugden emerged with the idea of killing every Buddhist who wasn't Galupka and then destroying most Galupka who didn't take refuge in his specific sect and his sect alone. China began working with this spirit since they both had the same interest to destroy and kill as many Tibetans and the Dalai Lama specifically. Darje Shugden, before his life as a spirit, was a monk who broke his Samaya and became the Gyopa Darje Shugden. He began contacting monks with the Galapka order. This is in time of the fifth Dalai Lama. Doji Shugden appealed to Galeg extremists saying that he would protect the Gulag in exchange for taking refuge only in him and would destroy control of all other schools of Buddhism. Doji Shogden is a bit of a ju- oh, sorry. Sometimes it seems that for a short while the practice of Gyopo helps. This is why many people do the Gyopo Puja, but in the real sense they get disturbed later on because when someone is connected with the Gyopa, they are transformed and become subject to them. When these people die, they become part of the class of Gyopa. The life of a Gyopa may last four or five or six thousand years. So for that reason, it is considered something very negative. The Doja Shugdens aren't the most powerful cults in the world. They seem to have actually lost power, but the Chinese utilize them frequently and are the reasons why traditional Buddhist countries have become extremely backwards. Myanmar is the most recent example. NKT arose due to the efforts of the spirit. RIP to Kelsang Gayatso. He got the raw deal of his event, but he did become a bad person. General practices of the Shugden worshippers are the same thing Gayapo infused. Pedophilia, ritualized murder, sexual abuse, sex trafficking, drug addiction, all of it is encouraged. 
The Shogdan and the sympathetic spirits used as slate oracles by the Chinese in Tibet to try and stamp out the Tibetan Buddhist religion, mutually beneficial to Dialogal and the Chinese government. People corrupting Buddhism in Asian countries modernly are often connected back to the Chinese government and Dalagal. That's about all at the top of my head right now. And if there are other questions, I'll answer them. Insiders tend to know more of this stuff, but it's why Tibet and Thailand both have high prostitution rates, child prostitution rates, have extremely fascist governments, are extremely strict laws, especially against petty criminals, but allow massive corruption to happen within their ranks, and they're basically white slaves, or Western slaves, especially Chinese slaves, politically. Beware the Church of Buddhism. Beware the orange robes. Turkish-Mongolian religions. Moving west. Modernly, political Tengrism is monotheistic in order to gain public support in the Islamic majority and the CCP-controlled countries. All traditional Tengrism is polytheistic animist, shamanistic religion from Turkish and Mongolian mountain areas and tribes. The oldest Tengrism in Mongolia got absorbed into Buddhism the same way Shintoism did. The process and why here is complicated to explain, but very interesting to think about. Tengrism in Mongolia is a Buddhist in the same way Shinto in ancient Japan before the separation is Buddhism. Tengrism in places like Turkey is monotheistic. Annex VIM in America is a part of a larger sex cult. Most cult leaders will meet the Dalai Lama at some point. They do this because they would think it gives them legitimacy as they shop their harems of sex slaves to the monks. Om Shurinko did the same thing. NXVIM made some statements after meeting him that he endorsed them, but the Dalai Lama basically said he only showed up because he knew these people were cultists in the organization. He even basically told them on stage that he was onto what they were up to. They didn't seem to get it. The forward seems to have been written by Renara, not the Dalai Lama. Dalai Lama defrocked his gatekeeper for being part of this cult. His translator spoke out on this behalf and said the cult was evil too, only after they were caught. These are high-class sex slave cults in the form of New Age cults, in the form of Oriental cults, in the form of Buddhist cults, in the form of occultist cults from Europe, Asia. It all traces back to vice, drugs, sex, murder, other taboos, cannibalism, necrophilia, pedophilia, zoophilia, etc. Basically, if it's a spiritual bad karma, it originates from these Buddhist occult black lodge 
circles. As it originated there and spread east, or spread west, sorry, spread west through the Middle East, from Turkey, through the Caliphate and um, Theosophical Societies in Europe, Gnostic Christians and Kabbalists, through Central Europe, into England and into the colonies in America, Canada and South America. Shugdens are about it with one exception, but you can't really do things like that and be Buddhist makes you an outsider. There's a handful of them in Thailand. Modern Rat Frau Damakad utilizes meditation techniques that this old pre-sectarian Theravada but corrupts it in becoming a making money. The Bank of Buddhism. The Buddhist Bank. See, Bank of Thailand. Fucking horrible. Aim Shurinko, now called Aleph in Japan. More Shinto Christian now than Buddhist. But the Shambhala comes from the Chagayam Trungpa. They are completely evil, but are extremely corrupt and have ties back to the Shugdens. Chogayam Trungpa broke his vows, went crazy, and instead of crazy, uh, instead of wise, school publishes legitimate teachings, but is way too corrupt with evil, insane energy. Fulan Gong is the attempt of Li Hongzhou to revive the occult and esoteric practices that were lost to the normal Chinese person in current China. This pissed off the CCP because they do not want those to come back. They very much want the majority of it to stay gone. They want the majority of all Asia to stay spiritually atheistic and ignorant and preyed upon by these extremely dark, cursed spirits. All crime in Asia is enforced by the very top elite all prostitution, drug addiction, murder, gambling, everything. The TCM Falun Gong teaches is fake bullshit compared to real Asian mysticism and shamanic white magic. But Mao made up to legitimize China, the atheistic, scientific China, against Tibet in the, and the West in terms of Christianity. This said the answer is basically that the CCP cannot tolerate any religion that seeks to prevent its own evil actions persecuting and destroying first traditional folk magics of the Chinese Christians then now Muslims Xi is a pretty powerful wizard currently. His goal is the same as every other ancient Chinese person and many modern ones. Become immortal and live as God on this world. Though his methods are corrupted, not necessarily morally but practically, though I am one of the belief that his goal is immoral but in the actual practice may be the lesser of all evils. 
the real shit is almost entirely too crazy to imagine. Still, even the fake hokey bullshit is strong enough to let him get a good deal of god power. Such as charisma and authority. The few things that still exist in mainland underground China and in the CCP that are real is the basic spirit evocation. Feng Shui, or Feng Shui, largely underground, goes beyond just arranging furniture and houses, but is a spiritual and cosmic interpretation of yin and yang. CCP has their own professionals for this even, essentially hired state magicians. Meditation used for cultivating spiritual powers. The public is banned from publicly meditating or practicing meditating groups. Reconstructed Qi Gong, otherwise known as the cult without a name. The difference is he's one of people on the fringes. There's a lot of infighting that nobody expected to ever have. Used to be the power struggles between places like China and America was only in the exterior, and they worked together in private. But some scary shit has happened to throw it all into the air. Now these power struggles between occult groups is becoming real, both spiritually and physically. Z is one of the examples of the interior power struggles between two competing factions before post-Harambe events. There's a lot of reasons for why China began chasing him free Harambe, and Harambe is a, is a 4chan terminology. So now there is a battle going on between the Black Lodge of Tibet and the cult of Moloch in the West and Atlantic. Z is part of a larger cult. He's just on the fringe of it because he's got his own interests, the immortality and becoming a god. Getting what the what he wants will make him enemies of other forces who want the same thing or their greatest ally literally depending on luck it's connected to the Taoist word Zian which meant the same thing as what deathless means in Buddhism i.e. Nirvana immortal but not being part of the world after death spiritual immortality not physical immortality however later Chinese took this literally Texts like Xinjing Zhuan and Baopozo are around when you see the change in the public and they describe their theories and methods for achieving physical immortality. Nidan, Tao, Yin, Wadan are examples. Wadan caused huge amounts of cinnabar poisoning by the alchemists searching for immortality. Oh boy. Well, most people don't know this, but Mao still practiced Chinese esotericism once he got into power and frequently and readily studied occultism. He also had close cabinet members and on the whole thing with him regularly visiting shrines to pay for his success, uh, power and forgiveness so they could escape their bad luck from having killed people and done traditionally evil things. He took feng shui, luck manipulation, extremely seriously too trying to preserve and acquire as many sacred artifacts as possible from the museums. 
No government building you go to in China will ever have a fourth floor. They're still like this. He denounced it in the public through an order to maintain a political and spiritual power over people. When Mao rose to power, it pissed off the people in the cult and fringe at large, and they wound up essentially all getting into each other's uh, business. If you've ever lived with drug addicts, this is extremely similar. It's essentially a kind of addiction. And addictions, even when they hate each other, or addicts, even when they hate each other, will stay together in order to get their fix. The reason they stay together is then ultimately to try and maintain and consolidate power within the group because they are terrified that people will rise up against it and that they will lose their fix, their control. Now Mao, being in power, he pissed off a lot of people, but at the same time he wound up benefiting from them in unforeseen ways. The Red Scare would distract Americans back home in the West and free parts of Europe from problems at home. Meanwhile, behind the scenes, they traded money and spiritual power frequently. Now the reason I brought up Mao circles back to why they're fighting and the alliance that is used to exist being broken in half. Mao practiced Chinese esoterica consistently and was good at it. He knew his luck very well, but eventually a meteor fell not too far away from his residential area. This freaked him the fuck out, threw him off balance, and because in feng shui meteors falling from the sky symbolize somebody is going to die, induced his own death. Now, after his death, China became similar to America just a worse version of it, i.e. giving its people enough freedom through making the entire country gray and corrupt and a victim of consumerism. They eased up on the ban of spiritual practices, still wasn't actually free, but it's just more monitored now, and controlled. Enter Z in 2008. Olympics. Z, upon gaining power through the Olympics he engineered for Beijing, didn't make things in China become weird right away. Enter the natural disasters. Natural disasters are always a bit of a problem in China, but in feng shui, they are two major meanings. Casual natural disasters are signs of divine retribution. Underneath Hu Xiento, around 2002, earthquakes and floods began beginning worse. This scared Hu Xianto a bit, but not so much, since he assumed he still had control over the country. He began enacting slightly stricter religious controls and persecutions through land development, literally forcing out traditional holy villages to possess shrines. Then in the 2008 earthquakes happened. This scared the fuck out of every official in rural China for reasons we'll get to. As time went on, natural disasters in China got to their worst, coinciding with Xi Jinping rising to power during the summer of 2008. This upset them because it meant that heaven was punishing them. This being the case, they began to start acting unfavorably to other members in large cults because they were powers being challenged by heaven. They wanted to assume absolute power forever which put them at odds with Western factions of the cult that were mutable to their exterior and internal, or mutable being exterior, and not subject to their internal calculations. Once Jinping took the presidency in 2012, 
he would proceed to enact the cruelest and harshest restrictions on religion since the Cultural Revolution of the 1960s. He did this because the CCP was met with consistent signs that in feng shui signify that heaven is angry. They didn't want the people to catch onto this and danger the party, so they figured out through, through religious persecution and the destruction, they could negate all human challenges to them. Now, China is becoming tense with other nations in the West and those sympathetic to the Western factions of the cult because they feel their grip shaking and they don't like it. Coinciding with Xi's increasingly harsh punishments on religion and the organ harvesting of religious peoples, something happens that scares the absolute fuck out of him and increases his foolish actions. Natural disasters don't happen casually. They happen one after the other, consistently and constantly. Famines, plagues, earthquakes, floods, buildings collapsing, etc. The secondary meaning of natural disasters in feng shui is that the current ruling dynasty has lost the mandate of heaven. Having lost the mandate of heaven, they must either stand down or be overthrown with violence. When natural disasters happen consistently in a line, break w without any break, this is seen as having lost the mandate of heaven. Z and his regime began harsher persecutions as this scared them and they wanted to maintain absolute power over communist China. Not give a fake regime change and to have to give a more open democracy with elections, Z wants to be a god. Something that challenges him at a time where he's been given signs that heaven will overthrow him is unacceptable. Fulun Gong cannot exist peacefully in China. It is a threat to the dynasty at this time. No religion can exist. It is a threat to the dynasty at this time. This sends a shockwave through China, and the people who are more reasonable in the cult, Western sympathetic people, struggled to grasp China was now going to take its people and its allies and attempt to take over the world and overthrow the other people competing in power with the exception of people like Putin in order to try and maintain power forever over communist China. COVID was the icing on the cake for them that finally pushed a paranoid Xi to a desperate power grab globally. Since then, there's been some other strange happenings in China, all of which confirming one thing. The CCP dynasty is going to end. Xi's hair has since then turned gray. Unironically, the CCP's dynasty being overthrown and them aiding the Russians as trying to take over the world means that potentially they may have permanently damaged the cult through the entire world and could cause it all to end entirely. That's pissed off a lot of the occultists internationally, obviously. So now the fake outrage behind the scenes and the fake friendships that are appearing and the fake tensions in the public are being pushed very, very real. Phelan Gong 
was especially disliked because it was adding to the Feng Shui signs arising from the 2002 to now. The fights are real now. Though they'll try to cover each other's asses, it is all falling down. The house of cards that they built in the shadows has been knocked over. Some reading material up to this point in history when it comes to the occult can be found specifically about the Ur Lodges, which are pre-Babylonian occult lodges. Occult Conspiracy, The Secret History of Mystics, Templars, Masons, and Occult Societies by Michael Howard. Secret Societies of America's Elite by Stephen Sora. The Architects of Deception Under the Sign of the Scorpion by Jura Lena. Scarlet and the Beast, A History of War Between English and French Freemasonry by John Donaire. The Anglo-American Establishment by Carol Quigley. To Eliminate the Opiate of the Masses. Marvin S. Antelmine Dope Incorporated Britain's Opium War Against the War uh, Opium War Against the World by Lyndon LaRouche It is claimed that the Kremlin boss had taken part in bizarre secret shamanic rituals with his defense minister, Sergei Shargov. Defense minister Sergei Shargov is considered a discreet acolyte of shamanistic practices. The inhabitants of Tuva declared him the incarnation of Subato, one of the most effective military leaders of the Mongol Empire. Subato's Exploits include a victory in the Battle of the Kalkai River, which began the collapse and defeat of the Kivian state. Putin spends all of his vacations in the Altaya, mainly in the Republic of Tuva. Russian researchers claim that Putin became interested in Altai mysticism in 2014. The president has already visited many sacred places, and when the war broke out and unrest broke out, he found a point of strength in the Ataya. According to the Altaya Bailik, which when change begins and unrest arises, the ruler must return to the source of the river of life. He is actively told that the Altira is the common root of the Slavs and the Turks. And at this place of power may be assembly point of all Russians. Tuvan shamans insist that northern entrance to Shambhala is in their republic, near the ruined fortress of Por Bazin. In 2007, 
Sergei Shurgo organized an archaeological expedition there and convinced Putin that there was an entrance to Shambhala. Putin has received the secret sutras of the psychophysical doctrine of the Shaolin Kung Fu as a gift from the abbot Shin Yongxing. Shi Yongxin introduced the presidents of the Russian Federation to one of the Wushu masters named Shi Yanzhao and said that his experienced master is able to use Qui Gong as a powerful mean of self-defense and fighting back for spiritual enemies. Putin literally thinks he's an Asiatic Khan. He worships the great sky god like Genghis Khan and wants to conquer the world like his idol Genghis Khan. He is part of an atavistic oriental steep cult, not a part of the occult lodges or the Ur-larges. In Latin America... especially those from the Caribbean and its influence of voodoo and Palo Mayambe they called jinns, jobs, and negokis confessed by a Cuban Santeria witch now living in New York City the woman claims a long time ago in Cuba she attended a Santeria grand ritual to which Fidel Castro was immersed in a bathtub full of blood from specific sacrificed animals. This ritual would protect him against harm and give him total control against his enemies. Another source claims that Castro was consecrated at an early age to Ayugana an African deity and one of the 16 types of manifestations of Otabala, which had miraculously saved him from certain death at the age of six from drowning. The consecration was performed on the Bran estate by the servant of Castro's home, a black woman from the Congo, a Santeria of the Palo Mayambo goat, Castro's daughter, Alna Fernandez mentions that both Fidel's mother, Lina, and his grandmother, Dominga, were involved in Santeria. By the mid-1958s, most of the Cuban population profoundly hated the Batista regime. But that time, the Santeros from Rigla and Guanabaco, two small seafaring towns on the southeast of Havana, had joined their Santiago colleagues... and the prophecy of Batista's downfall. They were fully convinced that Batista's days were counted after they got word that Fidel was wearing a resgrado prepared by his grandmother, Celia Sanchez, a powerful Santeria witch and daughter of Yamaya. When Batista abandoned the country in the early hours of January 1st, 1959, Cuban Santarios interpreted the event as an auspicious sign. The revolution was won on the day of San Manuel, the holy day of Orishas. Federal Castro, therefore, was an elegato, a man chosen by the gods. In January 1959, Castro and his guerrillas arrived in Havana, 
Many of them were sporting Santeria necklaces and bracelets made out of colorful beads and seashells. Though largely ignored by American media, the fact did not escape the attention of Santeria believers throughout the world. Santeria necklaces are colorful and have precise color symbolism and coating. Red and black beads, for example, are the colors of Ilagao, while white breeds are the ones of Obatala. Red and white are Chingos. Blue and crystal beads are Yamayas, and red and yellow beads are the colors of Achun. The color of the beads may vary depending on the aspect or path of the Orisha. Colors have an important symbolism in Santeria. To Santeria Epdeps, the red and black colors of the Movimento 26 de Julio, the 26th of July movement, banner had a special meaning. They were also the colors of Ilogao, god of destiny, the one who opens and closes the doors to happiness and disgrace, to victory or defeat. In many Cuban homes, a glass full of water devoted to Ilagao is kept behind the main door as a talisman of good luck. When Fidel's bar buddies entered Havana in triumph carrying the M26-7 flags, many interpreted as a signal that Ilugao was practicing and protecting Fidel Castro. The phrases Novus Ordo Seclorum, English for New Order of the Ages, is the second of two mottos added to the Secretary of Congress and the Confederation, Charles Thompson, on the reverse of the Great Seal of the United States. The first motto is Annuit Coeptus. The phrase is a reference to the fourth Iglogu of Virgil, which contains a passage in lines 5 through 8 that reads, Ultima cumia venit iam carmenis aetus. Magnus ab integro seclorum nascitur ordo. Iam reddit et virgo. Ridiunt saturnia regna. I am Nova Progenius Coelho de Meter Alto, which is translated to English as Now is come the final era of the Sibyl's song. The great order of the ages is born afresh. Now justice returns. Honored rules return. Our return of Saturn's reign. Now a new lineage is sent down from high heaven. The first inhabitants of Italy were the Aborigines, whose king, Saturnus, is said to have been a man of such extraordinary justice that one was a slave in his reign or had any private property, but all things were common to everyone and undivided as one estate for the use of everyone in memory of his way of life. It has been ordered that at the time, Saturnalia slaves should everyone sit down with their masters at the entertainments, the rank of all being made equal on Saturnalia converted to Christmas. An account ascribed by the historian Isubus to the semi-legendary pre-Trojan War Phoenician historian Sunchenathon indicates that Kronos was originally a Canaanite ruler who founded the city of Byblos and was subsequently deified. 
This report gives his alternative name as Elus or Illus and states that in the 32nd year of his reign, he castrated, slew, and deified his father, Epigeus. Epigeus, the narrative, claims that was thereafter known as Uranus. It further states that after ships were invented, Kronos, visiting the inhabitable world, bequeathed Attica to his own daughter, Athena, and Egypt to his son, Thoth, the son of Miser. Then our historian, and some other things going on at thus, but Astarte called the greatest, and Demorius named Zeus, and Adotos, who was entitled to the king of gods, reigned over the country by the consent of Kronos. The Astarte put upon her head, as the mark of her sovereignty, a bull's head, and traveling about the habitable world, she found a star falling through the air, which she took up and consecrated in the holy island of Tyre. And the Phoenicians said that Astarte is the same as Aphrodite. Moreover, Cronus, visiting the different religions and regions of the habitable world, gave his daughter Athena the kingdom of Attica, when he happened to plague with a great mortality. Cronus offered up his only begotten son as a sacrifice to his father, Uranus, and circumcised himself, and compelled his allies to do the same. And not long afterwards, he consecrated after his death another of his sons called Muth, whom he had named by Rhea. Muth, in the Greek pantheon, is considered a god of death. Just like Pluto or Hades. Muth is where we originate the term Mithras. And Mithras worship, which is the root and foundation of all European occultism. Mithras is the slayer of the sacrificial bull. Specifically, Mithras, the one who holds the sword. Remember this, it's extremely important in the death cult to understand that the greatest hero and icon of the death cult is Mithras, who is a sacrificer, an animal sacrificer, and a human sacrificer when it comes to human, animal, and child sacrifice. Kronos, Saturn, is also known by the name Moloch in the Middle East. Moloch the cult of Moloch According to some sources, MK Ultra and MK Often went beyond mere research into mind control and incapacitation of enemies, as well as interrogations of prisoners. 
and plunged into the world of black magic, sorcery, and the occult. The suspicion was raised by British investigative journalist Gordon Thomas, who wrote a book in 2007 in the life Secrets and Lies. Thomas relied on allegations of Dr. Sidney Gottlieb, head of the CIA's Technical Service Division, also known behind the scenes at the agency under the nickname The Dark Sorcerer. According by Thomas, part of the M.K. Often project was dedicated to studying a vast occult literature that would have often been collected from archives and libraries by the Nazis in 1940s. Many of these books were looted by the Germans during the war and covered topics involved the use of magic and spells as tools of war. Some of these involved in the project didn't go so far as to actually believe in black magic. Others became full-blown warlocks. But they accepted that if they could offer a way to control and intimidate people through fear, it was pragmatic to master. Using supposed witchcraft and appealing to supernatural powers could have a detrimental effect on the morale of the military... So it was decided to keep it covert and within secret societies. The author argued that black masses and staged human sacrifices as well as the use of legends and folklore creatures could have been devastating, or sorry, would have been operated within military bases in secret. But the truth would be devastating on the effects of morale, even of military veterans and lifelong officers. Supposedly, MK Ultra agents have used this tactic in Vietnam, inserting rumors into guerrilla-dominated areas and spreading rumors about the presence of alleged monsters and demons from the Southeast Asian folklore in connection with agents using shamanistic and occult superstitions against enemy combatants. To learn as much as possible about the topic, MK often agents met, consulted, studied, and employed the help of numerous mystics and occultists, including clairvoyants, astrologers, mediums, psychics, voodooists, modern wizards, demonologists, Satanists, and even Monsignors of the Catholic Church of the Archdiocese of New York City, specializing in exorcisms. According to rumors with MK Ultra itself, the agents had a considerable amount of information about the occult to begin with and included everything they could. Full access to libraries and works on the subject are available, as well as the freedom to act clandestinely, performing black masses and rituals as needed, funded by the U.S. taxpayer. Also, according to Thomas, members of MKUltra had practical classes in the occult, knew a lot about Crawley and Tarot theories, and some were still versed in Latin and Greek from university. Program members allegedly sought ways to adapt magical rituals for military use and in normal religious ceremonies creating what they called the New Age. The CIA even hired the services of three astrologers, a tarot reader, and two specialists in palmistry, 
in recruiting future agents. It also employed at least two pendulum specialists and at least one Curlian photography researcher, a voodoo sorcerer who believed he could turn people into zombies and cast curses was hired in Haiti and went on to conduct lectures on the alleged powers of voodoo and zombieism. A Houston, Texas sorceress named Sybil Bleak was one of the latest acquisitions. Leak was a member of the Church of Satan, led by the notorious Anton LaVey, and believed from time to time to embody the demonic entity Lilith. In addition to Gordon Thomas, another journalist and researcher, Alex Constantine, wrote about these arcane searches conducted by the program, claiming that the CIA showed an interest in obscure cults and religions. This interest was based on the thesis that creating sex of this nature in enemy nations could result in a chaotic element in the case of revolutions. Constantine believed that sex such as the Temple of Set, the Process Church of the Final Judgment, and the Finders could be examples of cults built by MK Ultra from the ground up. It also raises the possibility that Jonestown's People's Temple of infamous Jim Jones fame would have learned his persuasion and control techniques from the CIA itself. For Constantine, some of the methods employed by Jim Jones to stage the behavior of his faithful demonstration and mass suicide were specifically from the MK Ultra playbook. Constantine says the CIA maintained an entire division of social scientists and academic university professors that examined the advances of sex and cults established in the 1970s onward. It would have even sponsored the creation of some of these sects, such as the Manson family and others in various African and South American countries as well as Asia, such as the Moonies. First, Constantine, the explosion of cults and sects until the early 1980s is closely linked to MK Ultra's weaponization and promotion and funding of their growth. The Palo, of Afro-Cuban origin, is also present in Mexico and practiced by many drug traffickers, especially in Cuyacan, an area next to the U.S. border. We should not confuse Palo with Santeria. Palo works more with the cauldron that includes a giant spirit, and they work with consecrated sticks and woods. Palo Mayambe is known as Las Reglas de Congo. The word Palo is applied to this cult due to the use of carved wooden statues on the altar. Another hypothesis close to religion points at the equivalence between the words Palo and tree, with trees being the places where the spirits live. In the Afro-Cuban-Caribbean religion Palo Mayambe, a Mayambero who is akin to the Voodooans Bokar, obtains his familiar spirit by visiting a cemetery and digging up the skull and femur bones from a person. Then these bones are used in a black cauldron along with a variety of foul-smelling herbs and a black dog or rooster and other sacrificed animals. The spirit is invited to come and live in the cauldron, which is like making a mini-universe, a microcosmos, for the spirit to reside in. Then when a person is targeted for a nasty spill, the Mayambaro will ask the spirit to chase down the victim and kill him. In 1981, a Payo Mayambo murder 
was documented and spread by the FBI. In 1998, Miami detective investigates crimes of the occult world, with a narco cult becoming infamous, understanding the use of Afro-Caribbean and Mexican religious cultures in the drug wars. Philo's Judaism, like St. Paul's Christianity, attempted to blend ancient Greek philosophy with Judaism while Christianity tries to appeal to the pagan world. Philonic Judaism attracted Jewish mystics who later became the Kabbalists. Kabbalah has a great deal in common with Gnosticism, Hermeticism, and Neoplatonism. They are all originated in Alexandria, Egypt, in the Middle East, with Kabbalah being the Jewish version of the other three. There were many disputes between Gnostics and Kabbalists, being the Gnostics regarded the god of Kabbalah, Jehovah, as the devil. In Kabbalah, the eternal platonic domain of perfect forms is relocated to the mind of Jehovah. To be more exact, the perfect forms are thoughts in the mind of the emanation of Jehovah that Philo called the Logos, or the world. And Jesus Christ was, of course, later called the Word by Christians. Adam Kadmon, the heavenly man, was the perfect image of the Logos, not of God himself, as in the Einsof, or the Ein, who cannot be represented but having likeness or images to all men. Heavenly Adam was neither man nor woman, but rather an incorporeal idea. Earthly Adam, who was later fashioned from clay by the idea, the Logos, was corporeal and belonged to the world of the senses. In short, Adam Cadmon, primordial Admon, Adam is the platonic man, and Adam, earthly Adam, of flesh and blood, is the image or reflection, the inferior copy, the simulacra of the idea of the concept of man brought to life by the Logos, with whom Plato would have called the Demiurge. Earthly Adam was formed as a man-woman, androgynous, and then the Logos separated them into Adam and Eve. So the idea of Adam pre-existed Adam's earthly appearance, but image of Adam Cadmon himself could somehow reincarnate as the Earth. Would he not be man-god, the Messiah, the word made flesh. Moloch is a deifying interpretation of a very particular historical figure. The same one who gave rise to the Babylonian Chaldean narrative of the so-called Ninurtu and Marduk. In fact, the word Moloch does not originate in the Canaanite languages, being a foreignness term derived from a misrepresentation of Maratuk. The same is true of Baal, which originates from the Sumerian treatment of Bel, meaning Lord. The cult of Dinartu can be traced back to the oldest part of the Sumerian history. In the inscriptions found at Lagash, he appears under his name Ningirsu, the Lord of Girsu. Girsu being the name of a city where he was considered the Patrian deity. In the astrotheology system, Nenartu was associated with the planet Saturn, or perhaps as offspring or an aspect of Saturn.
in his capacity as a farmer god, there are similarities between Nanartu and the Greek titan Kronos, whom the Romans in turn identified with their titan Saturn. The Chaldean word for ruler was Tur, which also meant bull. The word father in Hebrew language, for example, is A and B, Abba, where the Aleph mentions bull or ox and the B is Bet, meaning house, so house ox. Kings wearing crowns also come from this. The word crown even comes from a word that means horns, and crowns represent bull horns. Many primitive tribes literally wear real bull horns to denote that they are rulers. The word king in Hebrew is melech. Notice the similarity to moloch. The name moloch results from a dysphonic vocalization in the second temple period of the Theonym based on the root milk. King There are a number of Canaanite gods with names based on this root, which becomes summarily associated with Moloch, including Biblical Malcolm, the Great King, which appears to refer to a god of the Ammonites, as well as Tyron Melkart and others. MLK can also be interpreted as Maelok, Ma meaning give, god, bull, or giver to the bull god and priest. Malachim would ma'el, ka'em, meaning giver to the high god. Saturn was considered the highest planet in ancient astrology. To understand the reason for the cult of Malik, Baal, Beelzebub, it is necessary that you understand both the history of the figures who inspired such a damning cult that insists on lasting for four millennia, as well as the history of its many worshippers. Furthermore, obviously the cult has long since caused to be focused on such a figure and is instead focused on worshipping and communicating with the remnant of its spirit. Approximately 130 years before the flood, which was not universal because it has long been uncertain, some shit happened and demons tried an invasive insurrection to awaken both the ones you know as Lucifer and the lesser known Seraph, known by the Hebrews as the obscure Ragul, the infamous Saturn. I... In my ignorance, have no idea what led to these events or where they happened. And like the reader, I consider them extremely unreal and fantastic, quote unquote. I know, however, that none of these stunts have been successfully carried out and exist only in the cosmologies and legends, the religious dogma of occult human sacrificers, pedophiles, criminals, and drug addicts. After such an event, these so-called demons, apparently trying to get away from such uh, persecutions, decided to incarnate. They apparently chose fetuses who having them 
particularly born to incestuous couples and tribes descending from Una and Adam allowed there to be born in particularly tall and beautiful bodies. Only seven receptacles are known to posterity and named, but only six existed. In any case, this single event in the drama of human history led to a bizarre situation a generation later. The half-dozen cliché had spread its influence. I don't know its means throughout pre-flood Mesopotamia, which at the time extended to the height of the Musandin Peninsula as the sea level was lower. Furthermore, contrary to what some would like to believe, the advances of civilization at that time, although vastly superior to its neighbors, and even though the aftermath of the flood and the beginning of the Sumerian culture did represent an immense return, were not those of an extremely advanced culture as in the western fantasies of a primordial Atlantis, for status was in fact similar to that of my pre-classical Iron Age culture. One of these receptacles was the biblical patriarch Mahalalil, who instead of seeking power, used his superior genetics to get away and live in the middle of the forest with a small harem of maidens. In a revolt approximately 105 years before the Great Flood, the other five receptacles were hunted down and killed by man. This, however, turned out to be a fatal error such that they immediately came into communication with little evil spirits or during their quest for power in life or after death. And with that once dead, they turned to their initial goal of freeing Ragail. With that, the two massive spirits that you know as Michael and Gabriel were remembered by local inhabitants respectively as Inky and Sin, revealed themselves to the population of pre-flood Mesopotamia. In an attempt to try to create a narrative against a possible receptacle as Ragul being reincarnated, which they could not contain and therefore assumed to have hidden somewhere in the earth. However, this ended up creating a hilarious situation. The universal creator preached by those powerful archons was associated by the locals with the Uanas Adam lineage, known as the Abkula, with the especially frightened by archontic prophecy and by the supposed live conflict of these two with Ragul, which from now on will be referred to as Saturn. Turned to their heir, the historical Mahalil Oranos and Amabugu Oranos, even because he already worshipped such a universal creator figure. However, by means unknown or lost over the past five millennia, Saturn had foreseen such a situation and decided to incarnate among the Mahil's six sons, ironically protecting himself from the anti-demonic fury of his followers and the population of his ex-worshippers. After the revolt against the five receptacles, the struggle between the archons being seen in the heavens and the appearance of Sin and Ea, the peoples of antediluvian Mesopotamia, who from now on will be referred to as the Canaanites, had their faith, culture, and vision of world extremely shaken. Earlier they had come into contact with the concepts of the eternal primordial God existing 
and the three times an observing humanity and all-encompassing but extremely distant support and superiority. In fact, the historical Adam, remembered by the Sumerians as Uana, was already curiously considering and remembering by them as the father of civilization, patron of teachers and creator of scripts. The intellectual elite considered Uana's lineage sacred, and many even considered worshipping their strange one and eternal god, and Uana's youngest grandson was indeed a great king remembered by the Bible as Enos and by the descendants as the Canaanite remnants. The Sumerians and Akkadians as the Imedugo and Umalala. However, after the death of Enos at the advanced age of 75 years, his grandson remembered by the name Imasumgala, Emsumgalana, became king, leading to a crisis of successions among his family. The Canaanite population in the moment of weakness opened up in revolt against the Uana lineage and massacred all male members of that very first recorded royal dynasty, with the exceptions of the one remembered as Kinnon, son of Enos in old age. This revolt apparently had a great religious connotation of consequences because as a consequence these primitive monotheists were persecuted and the cults of the god son Utu the lunar goddess Nana and her rival children, Kai, the animals and the earth and plants, and Azu, the water, or sorry, the animals and the earth and Azu, the water and the plants, were reestablished by a Canaanite remembered by Ired, who became king. The followers of the one god and heirs of Uana, then called An and the future corrupted to become the father god Anu, fled to pre-Aryan Iran, where they failed to integrate with the local barbaric nomadic populations and soon split into two camps, one led by the pretender to the Kenan throne and composed mostly of men, devoted himself to exploring the Indian Ocean and seeking the land south of the Arabian Desert in which little is known other than the strange Negroes inhabiting it. The other, composed by the overwhelming majority, established itself in the culture of Neolithic farmers of the Indu Valley, eventually integrating there, creating India. Kenan and his followers eventually reached the mouth of the Nile, which was then located in present-day Yemen, and settled there, eventually becoming the local elite. In fact, Kenan translates into Chaldean as either Negro Noble or Lord of the Negroes. So I guess this isn't his real name, but fuck it, the guy died four millennia ago. However, before all this, still in the reign of the father, Enos, they said Kenan had run away from home and had a son, therefore spread from the massacre and remembered by the name Mahalelo, because the conditions of birth recall a prophecy then popular and relevant in this so distant time. But let's get back to the situation after the revolt against the receptacles, the god kings. Mahalal managed to become king after the population became receptive to Anna's followers again, and a civil war against the degenerate, decaying elites of the sons of Irod, leading to a division of the Canaanite Mesopotamias between Utus called pagans, supposed magnanimously forgiven, and a restored monotheistic kingdom. 
seeking their destruction. Mohalel's relative long reign and his heroic, patriarchal, paternal nature led to him being adored by his followers and revered by civilians. This would, however, soon end when, between 90 and 80 years before the flood, the five receptacle schemes once again incarnated into humans. They began to develop at a strong occult counterculture that began to emerge. Meanwhile, the youngest of Mahil's six males, actually a receptacle for the Archon of Chokma, was beginning to plan his messianic rise to power. Mahalil's reforms include the forced introduction of a based code of morals and conduct, including the dissolution of then-prevalent harems, brothels, and polygamous marriages. Though the always maintained monogamous marriage despite the alpha-adamic appearance, Mahalil's first marriage was arguably an abomination, just as he married his stepsister and daughter-niece of his father's half-brother with the woman who raised him after his father got away during the chaos of the revolts of Irad. Mahalil adopted the Auric as a symbol. I have no idea why, but it was his real personal name, or maybe he just had some obsession with Aurax the bull. Fuck off, the point is this it will be relevant later. Some 115 years before the date of the flood and before the fall of the other five receptacles and still in his puberty, Mahalil had his first child, which we will call Inger, going forward. In 113, he had another son, namely Jared and Enlita. From 111 to 107, he had three other children, inspirations to the titans Iapetus, Hyperion, and Cyrus, respectively. Around 105, before the flood, he had a son who became an extreme irony, the receptacle for Ragael, Saturn, and Kronos. This one called Ninurta. The most interesting part of Garsu's coalition war, a failed attempt to acquiesce in favor of Saturn, the rise of Tubalcane and the life and death of Tammuz, as well as the reign of the Black Bull, will not be related. But there is a submarine connecting them. Yes, they are also trying to destroy all other Adamites and enslave their halflings. They were hunted down in an epic war where the Nephilim destroyed each other. However, such effort was halted when a vessel of Ragil Saturn, the one we know as Ninerto, appeared and established himself as king of all the world, which of all time ended in a major river mouth around the Marcedon Peninsula in a major battle. Due to the lower sea levels, a second war would be fought against Ninerto, ending in his demise, now covered by the Red Sea. Unfortunately, the deluge made such an awesome narrative to be forgotten, but it remained alive across the old world and the tales of Zeus slaying Saturn and the Tachyamon, uh, Titanmachy. The last of the Akpolo, the one who knows as Enoch, had a bastard named Matsuloso. He and his son Lamech fought in those two years against the giants, alongside angels and heroes of old, the ones the Bible names the Nephilim. 
Nephilim doesn't refer to the fallen angels nor the giants, but to the warriors who fought them. Nephilim is the old Hebrew for those who tumbled, as in, were killed in battle. In Greek mythology, Europa was a Phoenician princess of Argive Greek origins and the mother of King Minos of Crete. The continent of Europe is named after her. The story of her abduction by Zeus in the form of a bull was a Cretan story, as classical Karenay points out. Most of the love stories concerning Zeus originate from more ancient tales describing his marriage with goddesses. This can especially be said of the story of Europa. With fear and contempt for his wife's son, but without the courage to kill him, King Minos of Crete had a labyrinth built below his castle to trap the Minotaur. Years later, Minos defeated Athens in a war that cost him one of his sons. Minos, as revenge, ordered that every year seven Athenian girls and boys were sent to the labyrinth for the Minotaur to kill them. The most interesting detail is knowing that the people of Princess Europa, the Phoenicians, worshipped Moloch, a bullman god, and colonized Crete in real life. Some say that the Jews were fugitive of the island of Crete, who settled on the nearest coast of Africa, but the time when Saturn was driven from his throne by the power of Jupiter. Evidence of this is sought in the name. There is a famous mountain in Crete called Ida. The neighboring tribe, the Idaria, came to be called the Judea by a barbarous lengthening of the national name and the translation of the I into the or the yeah, the I into the J over time. Others assert that in the reign of his rule, the overflowing populations of Egypt led by Herosolomus and Judas discharged itself into the neighboring countries, calling itself the Judeas. After Typhon was evicted from Egypt by Horus, he fled in the back of an ass into Syria where he fathered two sons, Herosolomus and Judeus, son of Seth and Typhon, aka Opophis and Baal. An account ascribed by the historians Eusebius into the semi-legendary pre-Trojan Phoenician histories of the world, Sanchuthneathon, indicates that Cronus was originally a Canaanite ruler who founded the city of Byblos and was subsequently defiled or de deified. This report gives his alternative name as Elus or Elas and states that the 32nd year of his reign, he castrated, slew, and defied, or deified his father, Epigeus. Epigeus, the narrative claims, was therefore known as Uranus. It further states that other sh after ships were invented, Kronos, visiting the inhabitable world, bequeathed Africa to his own daughter, Athena, and Egypt to Toth, the son of Mazor. In Greek mythology, Minos, the seven young boys and seven young girls to be sent by Daedalus' creation, the labyrinth, to be eaten by the Minotaur. After his death, Minos became a judge of the dead and the underworld. 
the Minoan civilizations of Crete was named after him by the archaeologist Sir Arthur Evans. There was no iron first required. Minoa was quite literally the cradle of economy in the Mediterranean. Pretty much all of the terminology used today by hardline economists with ties to the various cargo cults running the world specifically ties back to the cultural and religious worship as practiced on Minoa. The daughter of Minos was revered as a, was revered as a deity throughout most of the Middle East and even the Moloch cults ties back to their first ancestral bull fetishes. Hell, King Minos is source of the fabled numbers 777 and 666. They vary from source to source, but they refer to the sacrifices of miners he demanded from Greece in a specific rhythm. Minoans seem to have close relationships with the Egyptians and the Sumerians, Akkadians, and engaged in trade with them all. It is very possible that the royal families of these Bronze Age Mediterranean cultures were all related, intermarrying over the centuries in various marriage alliances. Many of the islands have remnants of much older civilizations like Malta, Rhodes, Sardinia with giant burial grounds found, elongated skulls, and remains of civilizations with an extremely advanced understanding of stonework and acoustics. If you want another rabbit hole that goes back even further, look into the origins of the Sumerians and the Proto-Sumerian languages. It seems to have originated from the Danube Delta area where Proto-Sumerian Tartarian tablets were found in what is now Romania along with human bones with signs of cannibalism. And this is well over 1,000 years or more before the rise of the first Bronze Age civilization. It seems like there may have been a major city of these blood-drinking cannibals in Romania around 5,600 B.C. But this was wiped out with the Black Sea Flood and displaced with these people with mo to move south to Sumer and perhaps migrate to the islands as well. The Peloponnese. I will give you a summary. Four generations after the Epic of Gilgamesh and historical Enkidu during the reign of Mesonapata and the beginning of the glory of Ur, place of slaughter, and beginnings of Ru, son of Peleg, ventured along with his father to the west, where they settled next to the Palaskians. Ru became king of the Palaskians with the capital of Mukanao, later Mycenae. Meanwhile, the Yanmea of unknown name, but named the Hellenics and the Tactomos gathered a group of explorers and started from the delta of the so-called Myotide region, arriving at Messina. This Tactomos gathered enough strength to reach Crete, where his Yumea comrades established themselves as the local elite. It would be his son, Asterion, married to Europus, daughter of Phoenix, Lord and repopulator of Damascus, Biblios, and many other cities. Asterion had only daughters, and for refusing to take lovers and live a righteous life, he was succeeded by his godson, Minots, or Minotos, or Minos. Minos was a great tyrant, reigning for nearly five decades. His damned son, 
remembered by the Hellenes as the Aberration Minotaur, lived for 36 of those nearly 50 years. Both Minos, son of Ru, after he abandoned his family in Ur, and said Asteros were themselves avatars of the Archons, Minos, being an important recollector, imprisoned in the body of the son of Ru for damn perversion of Polisgating sorceresses, and Asteros a little condemned to death figure having the body, speech, and mind, and spirit associated with Aurochs worship for millennia by the locality. But back to the subject. From this elite half-proto-Yamnaya and half-proto-Sumerian mixed with the Pelasgian knowledge, a happy, brief, and august culture had emerged, very rich from Crete. The Minos dynasty will reign for two more generations until the brief reign of Minos's fratricidal grandson leads to the conquest of Greece by the Mycenae and the unification of that culture. The Mycenaeans, despite being ruled by the Atriatic dynasties of foreigners, the Proto-Sumerian origins, were relatively free and enjoyed lives and customs of their own creation. The Minoan Mycenaean religion had an impure pantheon formed by the spirits worshipped by the primitive culture of the Aegean Sea before it was drowned for the most part. Added to the knowledge brought to the Yamnaya and the Proto-Sumerian immigrants, Gnosis was both a palace and a temple of knowledge. The first known documentation of the condom was that of King Minos of Crete in about 3000 BC. King Minos, who ruled Kenosis, was a figure history from the Bronze Age. He was referenced in various manuscripts, including the famous Iliad by Homer. Minos, the father of the Minotaur, was said to have serpents and scorpions in his semen. His mistresses died after having intercourse with him. In order to protect himself and his partners, which included his wife, Pasiphaea, the bladder of a goat was introduced into the woman's vagina, which protected which protected the woman from disease. Prochorus, King Minos' subject, understood the sadness of Minos not being able to produce an heir upon introduction of the sheath. Significant results were shown. It is said that Pasiphae had given birth to eight children after the use of the goat's bladder. It is a subject of controversy, but the bladder was inserted into the woman. Another argument brought about is that the goat's bladder was worn by Minos himself and not Pasiphae. Now this is a bit of trivia. Another fun piece of trivia. In 1979, there's a Sydney ghost train fire in Australia with a photograph of a guy dressed up as Moloch complete with bull horns and ceremonial apron going into a theme park in Australia and setting a ghost train on fire killing seven children, vanishing and no one ever being able to capture him. The survivor 
Jenny Podivan claims that it was a nightmare for her and she would never forget that night in 1979. That mysterious fire caused her to lose her husband and two sons forever. Also, it reminds me of the creepy mysterious man photo incident. The whole thing is covered in mystery and no one can solve any of it to this day. Jenny later recalled what happened at Circular Quay. The family met the man wearing an evil mask and exuding a weird aura. He came and went like a gust of wind. Before they recovered, they disappeared without a picture, shadow, and said nothing. The management of Circular Quay revealed that there were many different kinds of things on the pier. Street artists, but after the accident, an entertainer dressed as a mysterious man was never seen again. Statues of Moloch, represented by the ancient Canaanites, had seven different doors adorning his body to seven different mystery realms. There were seven victims from this ghost fire incident, the ghost train fire. And the building is rumored to have had seven operational doors. Adonis, derived from the very strange archetypical synthesis, the receptacle of the one you know by Raphael, who was remembered by the Sumerians and the Akkadians as Tammuz, was, although a distant memory, remembered by the Proto-Mycenaeans, the historical Adonis existed as the son of Mer, daughter of Minos, with an Assyrian princess, and his own father. He roamed Mycenaean cities as a local hero and religious leader, having been murdered and supposedly revived only to die again on adventure. The problem is that at the time two deities were worshipped by the Mycenaeans. One spring based on memories of the Nephilim hero who was remembered as Tammuz by the Akkadians and another in the form of Protoboreus and his daughters the Seasons during the collapse of Mycenaean civilizations and Hellenic Dark Ages. These two cults merged with that of the historical Adonis, while in turn another hero. This time a receptacle in his own right came to be worshipped as Bacchus slash Dionysus. The cult of Dionysus had been created. The seven Apkula are the seven first antediluvian patriarchs of the book of Genesis. Seems like Sumerians registered the life of the first seven patriarchs of Genesis and called them the Apkalu, the first rightful sages of mankind. They were Adam, Uanna, who accomplished the plans of heaven and earth, Seth, Uanna Duga, who was endowed with the comprehensive understanding, the first sage, Enos, Enamdugaga, who for whom a good destiny had been created. Kinan, Emugalama, who was born in the first of all palaces. Malhalil, Amubulaga, who grew up in a pasture land and fathered many heroes of old times known to the Hellens millennia later as Oceanus, 
Kokoas, Kraos, Iapto, Hyperion, and Kronos. The later was a receptacle for Raphael Cassius and the ruler of the area now known as the Persian Gulf for two full generations. The Sumerians remembered him fondly as Ninurtu, and the Canaanites remembered him as fondly as Moloch. Jared, and Enlil, a conjurer of the city of Eridu, and Enoch, or Utubzu, who ascended to heaven and did not die. Eoptus had four Spurge male children, the oldest one being Atlas. He and his three younger brothers went on to the remains of Eden and now the Eye of Africa. There, his youngest brothers, who we now know as Prometheus and Impentheus, discovered the ancient mysteries, the ancient technologies. Prometheus not only learned how to artificial, or how to create artificial wombs and what they were formed for, but also the first of the men to work with electrical circuits. Atlas had no interest in any of this. He preferred to explore the islands of Atlantis in the middle of the ocean, where Neanderthalinus lived. Atlas's sons were nearly all sterile from being half Neanderthal. Thus, only his many daughters are remembered. Only his son, Hyas, with one of his nieces, was fertile. The many grandsons of Atlas survived the real Titanomachy and built an interesting city in the islands formed on the flooded ruins of the Garden of Eden. The grandsons of Atlas's grandsons would die in the Great Flood. The actual ten-foot-tall giants... Those were created around the time of Jared when his cousin, the one Minoans and then Hellenians, remembered as Prometheus, discovered and used the ancient technology below the eye of the Sahara uh, to manipulate genetics and create giant humans, who were mostly created by the request of demons uh, to be used as vessels to possess. Enoch's son, Jared, was born as an angelic host. His soul was that of a mere cherubi, though. And if it wasn't for his merit in life, he would become so, uh, you know, overpowered and evil. But luckily he was blessed, so his soul was human, but it originated from a good place. Uh, he actually did end up um, attacking the giant-making facility and destroying it. Even though he was so innocent and, and slow to anger. A traditional Canaanite child sacrifice to Moloch is described as such. The great sculpture of iron and bronze was in place. The Canaanites had prepared the space where the ritual would begin. Some Israelite women had already arrived and had children in their laps for the sacrifice. Several strong and muscular men wore light and thin clothes and were around the great statue. They were men who danced and beat drums during the feast to the god Moloch. That great statue had a cavity in its belly and a hexagonal shape, representing the god Moloch. The priest reached the height of the cavity 
using a stone staircase that gave access to a large statue in the shape of a bull. It was a frightening statue. In the cult, there were children, young people, men, women, the elderly. It was a large space next to the desert. The women collected the wood and took it to the process to be thrown inside the bronze monster. There was a great metal star formed by two interposed triangles, which was already beginning to glow before the flames of the great furnace in the cavity of the god. There were stone tables and a lot of wine available. It didn't take long. The whole place was filled with people coming from all over the kingdom until a priest in long white clothes began babbling words to the god. Drums began to sound and the flames of the statue's great cavity stirred in high or certain height as if being stoked by a supernatural force. Then began a frenetic movement. People who seemed in a trance articulated words of great euphoria in prayers and chants. Everyone began to drink and seemed intoxicated by the sound of drums and the movement of half-naked men in light flowing clothes. Until the priest went up to the steps to deliver a child to the god to which a woman had given him. He approached the cavity. It was difficult to get very close for the heat. Burned his face. Then he uttered some words that infected the worshippers of the god Moloch. Receive, O Moloch, this offering, and pour out of your power this night. The child was crying, but her cry was barely audible in the face of all that euphoria. So she was thrown into the cavity, and soon her cry was drowned out by the crackling of flames that quickly devoured the offering. The drunkenness of wine and the mad euphoria took over to the worship of the god. Soon the orgies before the god began. Men and women were raped by those male priests' whores. They were deflowered before the animal god, intoxicated by the ecstasy of wine and the burning flames of the furnace. They also tattooed themselves with burning iron objects that were used to make marks on their bodies. There were also men who castrated themselves, cut off their penises without seeming to feel any pain, and then threw them into the flame, saying, Receive, Moloch. Then these men were deflowered by other men, there between the great stone stairs that led to the god at the top. Not all castrated themselves, some just burned in lust with other men, men who were prostitute priests. They had begun sexual orgies like donkeys and ended their sexual acts by filling silver cups with their abundant semen. They were poured into bowels of those women and were taken mixed with wine by men and women. Behold the nectar of the gods, they said. Some women were deflowered by animals in heat. They kissed and committed lewdness with snakes and animals that had entered them, like horses and dogs. There were others who danced half-naked with snakes around their bodies or crawled as if they had been taken by some spirit. That night, five children were thrown to Moloch, and the services lasted until dawn. That whole place in the middle of the desert was filled with the smell of sin and death and orgy and smoke, whereas the human and fat burned in the fire. Moloch was the mighty, gluttonous god who bestowed his bounty upon mankind, but he wished a taste of all that he gave. 
Mollett gave only to be gifted in return a fraction. There was no altruistic hypocrisy in his little divine circle. He was rewarded a tax of all crops, all livestock, and all children from all families. He was not saving the world. He was not serving mankind. He cared for neither, only the praises to his glory and to his might. Moloch was a fierce, self-satisfied, masculine god. He deified the weaker sex even in love. He had no women himself, nor did he wish his worshippers to enjoy women. Coming to his temple to trail women along, he wanted none of their weakness and they were not allowed in his temples. Gentleness, delicacy, or romanticism were considered sins in the priests of Moloch. He was the god of muscle and belly. If cannibals were looking for a god, none could please them so much as Moloch, and Moloch could wish himself no better class of worshiper. His temple was out in the open, far from the city or village, with the polished ways of living. It was an immense, low structure with an enormous figure of Moloch the bull at its end, like the modern industrial plant with its towering chimney rising to the clouds. The god himself before, uh, appeared before the worshippers, a colossal giant man with a costume bull's head and tremendous virile power in the form of a mocking phallus. His arms were held outstretched as if he were forever demanding sacrifices. There were seven huge mouths or portals at the belly, an appropriate receptacle for the offerings that might be brought to him. The figure of Moloch was cast in bronze and merged with large furnaces that served as their pedestal. Whatever was fed to the god immediately landed in the fiery oven's coals. Moloch the glutton would fake or take no chances with his priests who might put away a sacrifice for themselves or share with him the fat or, or share with him only the fats of the land. As the sun was setting, the worshippers left their homes and wives, and loaded with sacrifices, they betook themselves to the warm abode of their god. While they were on their way, a huge fire was being prepared in the pit of the furnace. And as they entered the temple, flames reflected through the bronze figure of the divinity. Cold, cruel, and metallic, Moloch had become incandescent, aflame with the fires of death. Moloch was the fire that doesn't burn the brush or burn the bush and everything else. He is the fire that devours. As the tongues of flame shot through the monstrous figure, the worshippers yelled for joy. They danced about, emitting terrific cries, and in a frenzy hurled whatever they had into the mouths of the fiery god. This may have been products of their soil, fruits from their farm, a calf or sheep from their herds, a cat or dog from a whelp born, or their jewelry. One may have thrown his own cloak and clothes into the gaping mouth when he had nothing else to give as long as they gave. When the signal was given, the eunuch priests of Moloch marched into the temple and about the radiant figure. They came to serve this cruel, relentless, merciless god as the priestesses paid homage to a goddess more loving and generous in darkness. 
while the fair sex was excluded, sexual passion persisted and seemed all the more fired because of the absence of women and beautiful beardless young men, their bodies soft and fragrant from the use of oils and perfumes, sold themselves to the adorers of their god, depositing on the altar of the idol the money thus earned. Within the temple, too, there were dogs, trained for the same purposes, and the coins received from the rental and sale of these animals for sexual congress, called the price of a dog, went to the priests and temples of Moloch. The eunuch priests constituted a caste and sect with their own rite of initiation. These were held at night, deep within forests. There, in the heat of frenzy and steered by wild music and intoxicants, they gashed their own bodies with blades and ran about with bleeding or blood streaming from their wounds, falling over each other in orgiastic ceremonies. Women were excluded from the sheer masculine world of Moloch and his tribe. But the wives of the Molochites clamored for a god and for Moloch. The husbands would have none of it, but the high priest of Moloch knew better. He saw additional revenue for the temple with the sect of women doing for themselves what the men had been doing alone. Thus women, too, were allowed to serve Moloch. They had their priestesses, who prostituted themselves to the women worshippers as the eunuch priests did to the males in sacred homosexuality. Women were expected to offer their children the same way a farmer would offer his livestock. The priestesses dwelled in gay-colored tents that would travel across communities. These women, too, came to serve Moloch. Burning incense, playing soothing music, and preparing love charms and potions for sale and trade. Both men and women danced about the blazing Moloch. Two human races with no direct emotional contact, yet not without some influence upon each other, for the frenzied desire of the women for their priestesses reflexively aroused the passions of the men for their male priestess prostitutes. When the women came to offer their sacrifice, they cast into the devouring belly of Moloch whatever there was once upon them or within their arms. Greater the sacrifice, the more exaltation from the devotee derived from the crowd. In the heat of their ever-increasing passion, she brought the greatest sacrifice a mother could offer. It was then that Moloch first tasted the flesh and blood of infants thrown within him by mothers gone mad with lust. Moloch was the contrary god. He was the contrary to all refinements that human society had developed in the march of civilization, law, and order. He was contrary to human nature and human instinct. In Moloch, man revolted against himself. In Moloch, he turned his face on his own humanity.
He quickly ran down the ladder up to which he struggled so hard to ascend, destroying what was most precious to him and a spiritual suicide. leads into Nephilim. Nephilim weren't what you think they are. They aren't the giants, nor the product of Christian angels, fallen angels, and women. They are the heroes who have fallen in a war against Moloch and his followers. Referring to the heroes and warriors in the narrative sense of three pre-flood wars. Such Nephilim were both descendants of the genetically ideal human and the spiritually ideal natural man. The one you know as Adam. A full receptacle of archons, fallen and faithful. Enoch was the last of these Nephilim. teacher of the inky slash dragon Michael. The first being Hermes. The second Hermes being Woodenaz and the third Hermes being Toth Transmercury. Remembering that Saint Michael the Archangel is none other than Hermes Trismegistus. Long before life on earth was relevant, there were two companies of the Eternal he created from the Monad. The first is the holder of the masculine principle. The sleeping archangel Raphael or Saturn, he commanded his two younger brothers who were also crafted from the Monad's remains. These you know as Azrael and Raphael. Both received ophanisms to help them. Azrael's helper, Sariel is binded and Raphael's helper fell and is now known as Asmiotis, the black bird of the mountain. Those are the archons of the pillar of mercy. The second friend of God is the holder of the feminine principle. Long dead, it isn't known to mankind, but any major name, even though it's vessels like Saint Mary or Mother Mary, the Virgin Mary, etc., We call it Bina. Bina was obsessed with animalistic reproduction and wanted to become a mother, Gaia, fertility. It was also the first of obsessions and understanding that eternal and eternity are two different categorical things. Naturally, both attempts failed and after creating a primordial monster in the form of the old serpent, the ocean, Bina died and from her wings and a drop of Logos, the world was created. The old serpent received this planet to rule upon, adding Daita and the heavenly war, the mighty serpent lost its kingship. Its three aids, the monsters Leviathan, Ziz, and Behemoth, still exist and rule the earth through the Eocene. These are the three strange angels, the pillar of severity. 
Then there is the Logos, the second consciousness and the one direct result of creation. Thus Logos is neither a result nor a craft of the eternal, but his own son. Logos existed eternally in a meditation for aeons. Its thrice split spirit by the eternal resulted in the creation of the Dyat and Gabriel prior to the making of mankind. Recently the remains of the Logos were used to create the feigned soul of the Redeemer, Iso bin Maryam. These are the three archons of the strange pillar of harmony. Finally, the fourth race of archons was crafted in the monad, dispersed remains. The cherubim and our souls, for example, are in the pillar of creation. The Baal, most people know, is Hadad. He is not the same identity as Moloch. Moloch is associated with Saturn. Baal, a.k.a. Hadad, is associated with Jupiter. Only Hadad's father, El, is associated with Saturn. But this is because Saturn is the highest planet for the ancients. El was the highest god for the Canaanites slash the Israelites. In fact, both were worshipped together. Furthermore, I must tell you that the collective that you know as Baal, and they do not mean the Phoenicians' concept, but the common understanding of demonology proceeds in many secula seclorum, the narrative and life of the figure that Hadad was. Yes, Ishtar and Samaramis are inspired by a given historical figure who was the wife of a vessel from which Hadad's narrative originates. Already Asherah the same, but in the case of the concert of the historical Ninurtu. Baal is too dangerous and is reserved for great spells aimed at total destruction. Few dare to worship him directly. Baal is often used for operations involving extreme changes in the world. Things like evoking natural disasters, plagues, pestilence, that sort of thing. While Moloch demands quality and sacrifice, Baal demands quantity. To ask Baal for something just by sacrificing at least 100 people in a short period of time in the U.S., they can easily do this with abortion clinics. So, over time, Moloch and the clandestine covert Moloch child sacrifice celebrations of seven children at a time in enclaves in the middle of the desert, or middle of the nowhere, specifically the desert and the West, were replaced with concerted ball covens and cults promoted by the super-powerful warlocks promoted and funded and generated by the CIA for specifically committing acts of global or international terrorism, domination, destruction, and basically um, yeah, reign of terror, right? But of course the CIA would have the motivations for worshipping Baal over Moloch while industrializing and increasing 1,000-fold the child sacrifice necessary to even appease or uh, get the attention of the conceptual ancient bloodthirsty god that is also diametrically opposed to in a competitive sense with 
Moloch. So, here we're starting to see where the modern day cult wars are going on, and that we are seeing literally the breakup of the New World Order of allied cultists that were originally based all on human sacrifice and evil, uh, dark side negative indulgences of the worst taboos into a literally concerted empire of black magic that was created specifically to replace an existing clandestine organized crime world of small scale human sacrifice that could survive over long term millennia's within society unnoticed. Now we have a society of those evil black magic dark sorcerers from the top down, creating it in its own image with abortion clinics, um, wars, you know, chemicals, uh, the, the creation of uh, epidemics and viruses, etc., and laboratories, bioweapons being used on populations. Uh, fear, suicidal uh, intentions in uh, society broadcast through all the media, etc., basically forcing them to sacrifice themselves, uh, the worship of money, uh, all of this um, evil Babylonian system and shit is going on is because it is the magnification of an existing Moloch cult into a Baal cult. Baal and Asherah are the deities of the houses and those who have already obtained their land and now need the fertility of the fields, herds, and women to guarantee production. And this is also true inside houses. Let us not forget that Baal in the Hebrew language also means the husband, the fertilizer, the impregnator, and therefore the owner of the woman the owner of the child, just as the peasant is the owner of the land or a owner of a business. The human being's life, which is the emanation's participation of divinity in its multiple forms, is all contained in the seed, semen, sperm, the man deposits in the earth that is his woman therefore needs to be fertile. That is how it is for the Canaanites. Baal, the male deity, is always with Asherah or Astarte, the female deities, and the Asherah is almost always symbolized by a stone of wooden steel stuck in the earth, symbol of the fertilization act. On an elevation with the sacred grove, a sign of fertility and productive land. The harsh reaction to the prophetic and Deuteronomic movement against all this revelation that the worship of Yahweh was not very different and that it certainly incorporated the female divinity and fertility cults of land and woman. Baal was associated with the bull and Ugaric texts as it symbolizes both strength and fertility. 
Asherah is the goddess of fertility worshipped both in Canaan and by the Israelites during the time of the Old Testament. She is represented by a sacred tree and a serpent wrapping around it. Her human representation is a woman with big breasts, which represents fertility and sexual attraction. Abundance is the harvest and etc., and was always worshipped together with her consort, Baal the Bull, the golden calf son of El, from whom Baal took his wife, Asherah, for El himself was an old man and had no more virility while Baal was depicted as a young man. Thus, Asherah was the wife of both the father god, El, and his son, Baal. There was a practice that when the woman saw that there was good for the worship of Baal, she ended the worship by worshiping food, the tree pleasing to the eye and desirable in fruit to Asherah in an orgy of worship of celebration and feasts. Given understanding, she took from the fruit and ate of fertility, harvests, etc., creating wine, creating meals, and enjoying all luxuries. Then the eyes of both are opened, and when they saw they were naked, they held fig leaves together and made clothes for themselves. This is after eating the apple. Asherah was the consort of El, who was known as Yahweh. She was known by other names. Elat was her most common epithet. The Greeks knew her as Dion and Rhea. The Canaanites knew her as Tanit or Hawa, which is Eve in Hebrew. Who worshipped Asherah? Everyone who lived between India and Spain for two full millennia until the Christian era with the exception of the Hebrews who only venerated her until the religious reforms of Hezekiah and later the prophet Josiah. The etymology of Tanit proposed by Cross is feminine or Tannin, which would mean the one with the serpent. Furthermore, Ashereth had a second epithet in the Bronze Age, Dat Abthi, also She of the Serpent, Sumerians knew her as Nintu or Nehusur. The symbol is a serpent coiled around a tree, a staff known as the Cardusis. Associated with snakes, Asherah is an Ophidian mother goddess, and both are associated with trees and medicine. The cult of Aphrodite was largely derived from that of the Phoenician goddess Astarte a cognate of the East Semitic goddess Ishtar, whose cult was based on the Sumerian cult of Inanna. Aphrodite's main cult centers were Cytheria, Cyprus, Corinth, and Athens. Her main festival was the Aphrodisia, which was celebrated annually in midsummer. In Lyconia, Aphrodite was worshipped as a warrior goddess. She was also the patron goddess of prostitutes an association which led early scholars to propose the concept of sacred prostitution in Greco-Roman culture, an idea which generally now seems wrong. In various cultures, Astarte was connected with some combination of the following spheres, 
war, sexuality, royal power, healing, and especially in the Imars, hunting. However, known sources do not indicate she was a fertility goddess. Contrary, she was a virginity goddess in early scholarships. Originally a symbol of the Roman goddess Venus, it was associated with several deities and worshipped by different cultures. The symbol was found in nature, and that of the five-pointed upside-down star. The symbol is found like the shape that the planet Venus makes during the apparent retroaction of its orbit known then to all astrologers. It is one of the most used pagan symbols in ceremonial magic because it represents the four elements, water, earth, fire, and air, coordinated by the spirit, being considered a very efficient talisman for conducting rituals and collecting energy. The planet Venus describes a perfect pentagram across the ecliptic plane of the sky every eight years. Succession, inferior conjunctions of it are repeated in an orbital resonance very close to 13.8. Every 13 orbits of Venus. This has created its seal for Astaroth. Astaroth, known as Ashtaroth in demonology, is the great Duke of Hell and the first hierarchy with Beelzebub and Lucifer. She is part of the evil trinity. She is a, or He is a male figure most likely named after the near eastern goddess Astarte. The name Ashtaroth is a male demon first seen in the book of Abramelin, purportedly written in Hebrew in the year 1458 and reoccurred in most occult grimoires of the following centuries. Ashtaroth also features as an archdemon associated with the Glickhoff. Adverse forces, according to later Kabbalistic texts, as he rules over the Glitha of Jupiter, known as the Gagajaba. Dutch demonologist Johan Wea has described Astaroth in his Pseudonomericon, a Pseudonomerica of Ad Denominum. Astaroth is great and strong duke, coming forth in the shape of a foul angel, sitting upon an infernal dragon, and carrying on the right hand a viper, and also claimed to rule forty full legions. Also, he had to be approached by the conjurer with a magical ring on account to his stinking breath. He is similarly referred to in the 17th century work The Lesser Key of Solomon, he also makes an appearance in the notorious Grimorium Verum, the true grimoire, as the infernal principality which rules the Americas. Astaroth Sigil is the classic pentagram, a pentagram formed by the planet Venus. The Venus Calipige, also known as the Aphrodite Calipige. literally meaning Venus's beautiful buttocks, is an ancient Roman marble statue thought to be a copy of an older Greek original, an example of Anasema, 
It depicts a partially draped woman raising her light purplos to uncover her legs and buttocks and looking back and down over her shoulder, perhaps to evaluate them. Or your reaction. The subject is conventionally identified as Venus Aphrodite, although it may equally be a portrait of a mortal woman. Ancient Greece knew the beauty pageants. It is known as the Calypsi festivals were celebrated in honor of Aphrodite. The celebration consisted of a beauty pageant in which women exposed their buttocks to be judged, hence the term calipage, the one with the beautiful ass. The origin of the cult of the Aphrodite would be the following. The ancient legends say that two daughters of a relatively prosperous farmer in Syracuse, beautiful, cheerful, and a sharp wit, bet one Sicilian summer evening on the beauty of their buttocks to see which one of them was worthy of first prize. For this, they agreed to show it to passerbys and have them decide who was the winner. The girls lived on the outskirts of the city, on the road, so that they had to wait a long time to find the appropriate judge. At last, a young man with broad shoulders and a neat tunic appeared in the slope of a road. As the precise moment when he reached them, they saw them, Helena lifted her tunic and smiling looked down at her butt. So when Aspasia told him that the bet and it turned showed him her own buttocks, he could no longer think of anything but Helena's ass. Of course you voted for it, in fact you fell in love with her, so much so that when he returned to the city, he told his younger brother that would happen. The younger brother went to the outskirts of town as soon as he told the girls that he was there for. It turns out he fell in love with the younger sister even longer enough that he was lucky enough to see everything else. The boys plead with their father to allow them to marry the girls and the father could not deny them what he saw. They married and the girls became famous for their assets, which were called the fair buttocks. Since then they became rich and famous. They found a temple to Aphrodite and became literally the largest temple in Italy to the priestess. It was manned entirely by women who acted as prostitutes for the temple. With its symbol being the symbol of Ishtar, known as the Star of Venus. and being forever associated with orgies and swingers and sex parties in the film Eyes Wide Shut. For it is truly still prominent in much of the occult. Ishtar was a Babylonian goddess known for the debauchery and also Baal's lover. Gabriel and other heralds had defeated Ishtar in battle, and Jehovah tore her spirit into two parts. The licentious part became Astarte and was thrown into the hell of this world. The benevolent part was a full of maternal love and was spread among all of other females on earth known as Maria or Mariah. The Virgin Mary and Catholic lore 
is this split in two version of Ishtar, Venus Aphrodite, who is the spiritual wife bride of Baal. Their goal in promoting their agenda within the United States and the West specifically is to create the merger of the Baal covert superstate and a democratic majority-led, female-led society controlled by the dualism of the Virgin Mary Ishtar combo creating essentially a society of virgin whores able to generate the necessary populations and manipulate the male folk long enough to implement the sacrifices necessary to affect global international events. This is absolutely the level that we're on, the base now we're on in the 21st century, in the year 2022, in terms of cult placement around the world, between the two most powerful organized shadow cabals of the what you would call the Illuminati or the New World Order even though they're millennia old the ancient literally primordial Ur lodges that have manipulated and controlled society so succinctly that they hide within plain sight And that all people existing today, in some capacity, are but the descendants and products of systems that they already put into place. That from there were already global societies destroyed by great deluges, great resets, great mud floods, and now being tried to be put back into place. That put back into a sense of, of power and authority amongst the society that for the most part has absolutely no knowledge or awareness that these exist with so much power and influence to be argued to be the dominant and most powerful factors and sectors and factions in the world itself from the Black Lodge of Tibet that rules China 
in the underworld of China that boasts of having 300,000 professional assassins on their payroll. The triads of China boast to having 300,000 professional assassins on their payroll. That is larger than most armed forces of covert, street-level, plain-clothes, organized criminals that are professional hitmen contracted for their organization. That all take their orders from the Black Lodge and this ultimate secret society that originates from this evil, taboo-enforcing society of Tibetans. Then you have the Moloch worshippers of the Middle East, Europe, and North America, Canada, South America, etc., Australia, and they're vying with power with the similar but distinctly better organized and more powerful and more elite and grandiose but all worshippers intending to create an entire occult dystopia Or before the Moloch worshippers only ruled from the shadows. And in the midst of all this is the third contingency of Latin American, African, and other equatorial, primarily equatorial, vampiric cults. of blood-sacrificing, blood-drinking, and immortality-seeking voodooin and Piobombo necromancers and other demonic jinn worshippers. And that is catching up right now to the current year, 2022. You may be listening to this in the future. You may be listening to it significantly far into the future. If so, I thank you for the past. But if you're listening to this in the present time or in any relative context to when this was released, you know that in 2022, this is the current state of the cultish New World Order. So this is why there are wars now brewing between the Communist Chinese and the Western CIA along with so much machination and push to socially engineer such unnatural spiritually suicidal 
societal reforms while simultaneously poisoning the majority of their own populations. If the issue of hitting the acceleration into a nuclear world war while simultaneously creating a man-made famine for the majority of the world simultaneously with the largest economic recession and defeat of all trade apparatus that will reduce the quality of living by centuries in the decades to come as long as we're at it creating bioweapons and waging a shadow war of the chemical and virological kind while simultaneously creating abominations in nature due to cloning and genetic engineering and enforcing lunacy in terms of gender theologies so much so that the educated elite of a society quote unquote do not define or cannot define what a woman is if this was all a question as to why this was occurring or if this was all a question in your head or heart why was this happening to society it's because this is intentionally done by a cultist seeking to destroy the world as a sacrifice to evil false gods as they have always done for thousands and thousands of years. And there is no question who our enemies are. They're the ones telling us to do this. That simple. Thank you very much for listening to the Beyond Top Secret Texan. Iron sharpens iron, and a friend sharpens a friend. Thank you all very much for listening, everyone out there in Dreamland. You can follow it, be updated to the second, up to the moment. Have your finger on the pulse of the channel and all its actions and goings on, all its productions. By following Linktree slash Beyond Top Secret Texan, Linktree slash Beyond Top Secret Texan. Now bring you up to all the social media of my podcast website, Telegram group, Instagram, all that good shit. And you can you can enjoy the daily posts 
updates, as well as catch up on the archive of all the old episodes. Currently, over 200 of them, nearing 300 of them, so catch up while you can. Thank you all very much in advance for those that do. Well, a lot of work and researching these episodes and these topics, and I appreciate whatever I get any feedback from them, so feel free to leave a comment or share on Reddit or whatever social website you like using, 4chan or whatever. Definitely send the links through the social media, and I will post them and appreciate them, and etc. Thank you all very much. Peace out.